Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. I, I, I know what you're thinking. Kate, when are you going to deep dive into the eight-year-old mediocre film featuring Rachel McAdams and Channing Tatum called The Vow, the most compelling story about accident-induced amnesia since Michelle Tanner fell off that horse? That day is not today, and I'm so sorry. There was a mass confusion when I said I was reviewing The Vow. I did a poll. I didn't clarify for about 10 hours. A lot of people, I think, revisited the film. Some people watched the nine-part docuseries. Wherever you fall, I'm deeply sorry. The good news is we are going to be covering a group of women who forgot who they were. It's just not the result of a car accident in the winter of Chicago that results in amnesia that makes the protagonist forget why she married her own husband. That was sad. Now, today we're talking about The Vow on HBO, a nine-part docuseries about the Nexium cult. It's a show that, that goes really in-depth into a, a few members of the Nexium cult, uh, their ultimate departure from the cult, and kind of works backwards detailing their uh, slow but steady slide into what was an incredibly problematic, dangerous, manipulative, and criminal organization. It just leaves you asking yourself, like, how do people so innocently enter something? And the name of professional development, it all seems so harmless and innocuous at first, to ultimately end up supporting a pyramid scheme of sex slaves who are sleep-deprived, whose calorie intake is limited, who are literally on starvation diets, branded and blackmailed, and utterly obedient to this master who goes by vanguard who is a literal goober and knee pads and a sweatband if i typed in athletic sex offender into like microsoft clip art in the 90s this cartoonish man would come up he is both deeply disturbing and utterly unthreatening all at once and it's incredibly confusing and equally just as offensive not equally but you know i have a personal issue with the unfair edit given to America's most underrated indoor sport, and that is volleyball. I dedicated years of my life to playing very serious volleyball. It is a serious sport with actual athletes that wouldn't dare underhand serve, that takes speed and precision and strength and teamwork that is very, very underrated relative to other gym sports. This this band of gym class anti-heroes with their amateur bump, set, spike brand of midnight volleyball. You know how you tell a real volleyball player from a fake one? Do they say bump, set, spike, or pass, set, hit? Very different things. I digress. Point being, please, please, folks, do do not, please allow your mind to separate uh, the sport, the legitimate sport of volleyball, from a needless, childish gym class game like when it's raining out and you all duck under that huge-ass, you know, rainbow parachute. I feel like people are treating volleyball like the latter. Volleyball is not a, a stupid group activity like heads-up, seven-up. It's an Olympic sport. Anyway, not important, not important, moving on. But you don't have to have seen it because I think a lot of the info in the documentary isn't like, it's not nothing that I could, like, spoil or is... I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. I really enjoyed watching the documentary, but it wasn't revelatory in terms of like juicy twists and turns. I think it was more so meant to mimic this slow and steady snowballing of how somebody would get sucked in to an organization like this. And it's kind of slow paced. And you probably know most of the highlights from news stories about Nexium. So that said, I don't think you need to have watched the program to listen to this podcast and I'll explain it the best I can, which is actually kind of hard because it's quite convoluted in nature, right? So I'm very self-conscious about this episode. I've reworked it a million times. I don't know how to do this right. But what I decided to do is like 
okay, when Kate, so Kate Casey and I from Reality Life with Kate Casey, who I love and I've been on her show, um, we talked about the vow for like half of an episode we recorded a couple weeks ago. I had only seen half the show. And we have a really interesting conversation, but we also have a a side conversation about the future of reality shows and Bravo. And it's just like a kind of fun overall interview bonus episode that I was going to merge with some of my thoughts about The Vow. But then when I saw the remainder of the series, I realized that it overlaps with a lot of stuff I already talked about that I wanted to go deeper into. But her episode is really fun. It's about other stuff, too. And I didn't want to cut it down. But then I also realized, like, I'm not when I finished the series, I was like, I felt a little like left hanging because it's not really about the salacious details of the sex slavery for me. There's there could not be more content out there that explains Nexium. But what I'm missing is the mind control piece, the neuro linguistic programming piece, the 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 coercion piece. Like I, I I do and I don't get how a person goes from A to Z in this sense. It's just such an extreme example. But I think there's uh, common threads to extract that are used by other industries that are watchouts. And I just want to know like. How do we not get sucked into these problematic things? How how do we watch out for things that are cult-like? How does a person completely disassociate from their own identity and intuition and make decisions completely out of character? Like, what are the psychological, uh, what's the psychological like warfare, manipulation, and specific tactics? What is being done here? Like, I didn't really understand how how they got there, even though I I could not have watched more hours about this. And I don't even know that I can really get to it, but I did a lot of research. And oddly, I started researching cults in the bite model uh, that kind of explains the framework for cults for due to a separate reason over the weekend. And it was just kind of a funny convergence that I I will I will tell you about. Uh, Now, if you listen to the podcast episode, it's the big berry picking energy for me. You know, I'm no stranger to spending the first, you know, six to eight minutes of a podcast uh, describing my feelings towards something via Venn diagram. So allow me to do that once more. Please stick with me. If you guys know, I talk about restrictive religious groups all the time. I'm I'm borderline obsessed with um, the way you know, humans with free will comply to the rigid standards of like an antiquated organization that like not only requires you to be there and you're not getting paid, they ask you to pay them. It's, it's, you know, so often I look at a lot of like more uh, conservative religious groups and it's just like, I don't know, I'm a proud EpiPen carrier, but like sometimes I don't think these people know that they're not actually allergic to fun. Like they could be living their life and doing what they want. And I'm just like, why are you here? I understand rituals and tradition and and faith and and all the stuff it means, but you guys get what I'm saying. I'm obsessed with organizations that literally place such harsh limitations on your life and hang salvation over your head for a series of promises that quite literally aren't provable in this life. And it's great to trust and have faith and blah, 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 and be a part of it. But I mean the type of places that like literally take over your life in a consuming way and like mandate your behavior or you're withheld from like your important family and friend event you know what i mean anyway you guys know i'm obsessed with conservative religions that's the left of the venn diagram you guys know on the right side of the venn diagram i'm obsessed with uh the bullshit of self-help i think a lot of self-help is good i love a i love advice from a qualified professional i love Brene brown's phd you know what i don't love Rachel Hollis's background in like having a website for event planning. I-, I won't trivialize anybody's background who is using it to give qualified advice that doesn't put others in danger. My God, don't get it twisted. I have a I have a lengthy background in vague marketing jobs that are deeply unimportant to society. So you know, therefore, I don't give medical advice. But when you read "Girl Stop Apologizing" and it says 
You choose your thoughts, and there isn't one thing running through your mind that you don't allow to be there. I'm like, well, that kind of undermines the entire point of paying attention to one's mental health and acknowledging we can't always have full control of the thoughts that run through our mind because of, I don't know, uh, family history, brain chemistry, trauma, abuse, biological factors, life experience. I mean, <laughs> what? Those are the things that drive me crazy. When Rachel Hollis tells me in like, girl, wash your face or something like, interrupt anxiety with gratitude. I'm like, hang on. I have CBS on the line. I am canceling my prescription. I just bought a gratitude journal and my panic disorder is cured. Like, no, 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 no. There's such a stigma surrounding mental health and people have so much trouble getting help as it is. And it's so easy to blame oneself for their, their, their thinking, their mood, their behavior, their problems when there's often many medical reasons, treatments and tools and, and cognitive uh, behavioral therapies that can help people maximize the hand they've been dealt without shame. So when self-help gurus write books and do seminars and charge people fortunes and get them sucked into their web of content, for a bunch of people that I think are likely dealing with pretty common mental health issues but not taking them seriously enough and trying to cure them through a girl boss webinar, I get really upset and I think it's dangerous. If you're not, if you broke a bone, would you go see Tony Robbins? No. If you're feeling depressed or anxious, for the love of God, don't go see Tony Robbins. We go see Tony Robbins when we want to pay $3,000 to have a large grown man yell in our face about being sexually assaulted. So, you know, watch I Am Not Your Guru on Netflix for more. But anyway, I'm obsessed with the... BS of unqualified self-help advice that I think undermines mental health. I'm obsessed with uh, the nature of how people kind of get sucked into restrictive religions, and it prevents people, I think, from uh, living out loud, living their truth. I, I worry about people that grow up in environments where they're held to a certain standard that, that they did not choose, right? Uh, and when I examine these two areas and uh, how much I love a Venn diagram, I was quite blind to what is the center of these two circles, religion and self-help. I cannot believe I didn't identify this obsession more quickly, especially given that I'm always dying to have a true crime uh, arena that I can bring to the table because in society and culture, my podcast uh, category, the top charts, I can't compete with because people love crime. It's like Crime Town, Crime Orama, Crimeville USA, Murder, 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 She Jokes. And I'm like, wow, if I want to do well, I must talk about murder or crime. And you guys, I found my true crime. Just, you know, like Larissa from 90 Day Fiance might say, culty. I love things that are culty. I love cults. I don't love them for the people in them, but I love watching shows about cults because I think that they combine the best practices of the most manipulative tactics of both religion and self-help. You know, we love a sharp left here, be there in five. <laughs> The first uh, sponsor of this podcast is one of my new favorites, not only brand, but sponsors as well. It's Glossier, and you, pro you probably know them best for their skincare products, for kind of popularizing that impossibly breezy, dewy, glowy skin look, which I love. I'm obsessed with three of their products that are currently coming in a set that I'm pretty excited about because this is a weird coincidence. They're, I'm not just saying this. They're legitimately my favorite. I have been showing them on Instagram too. If you ever see me on stories, like I'm always wearing these products because I think this is the easiest way to like have a three-step approach to like a glowy but polished look. So that it's boybrow, future dew, and balm.com. Boybrow, you know, you know boybrow. It's the it's the brow product. It's brow pomade. It's like it gives you instantly fluffy full brows, the kind that are really in right now, if you will. Um, that it's kind of like a just a natural feathered look to a brow that isn't stiff. It's not. 
uh, it doesn't flake. It just kind of give, visibly thickens and shapes your brows into place. Future do, or I think I told you guys a few episodes ago, like, you know when you go get a facial and you're like, I look amazing, I'm glowing, I'm going to look like this forever, but then you just don't and it goes away after an hour? Future Dew gives you that post-facial glow, and it's an oil serum that has these like light-reflecting ingredients. It's not shimmer, or glitter, or anything like that. It just gives you really dewy skin. And I put it on on as like a last step after sunscreen. But sometimes I'll just put it on like my cheeks and high points, or nose, or forehead to kind of like use it as a makeshift highlighter. But I don't ever want shimmer in my highlighter because it s- sets into my fine lines that are developing by the day. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, and Bulb.com is is just a great. Uh, lip balm that was that leaves your lips looking smooth and hydrated there's an original that doubles as like a use anywhere skin salve um and there's some flavored formulas like mint and coconut that go on clear but others give like a very light sheer tint and it's just a very natural look that is packed with antioxidants stay hydrated and all the three of these together kind of becoming have become my honestly like routine staples so if you want to try the entire set boy brow and future do and balm.com you can visit glossier.com slash podcast slash be there in five and for a limited time, new customers can get 10% off their first order. The deal expires soon, so, you know, you might want to act fast. Don't be there in five to this. <laughs> That's G-L-O-S-S-I-E-R dot com slash podcast slash be there in five. 10% off limited time, glossier.com slash podcast slash be there in five. It'll be in the show notes. All right, back to the episode. We've got rituals. We've got creepy charismatic leaders. You know, we've got uh, some alleged divine uh, theology or, or, or philosophy that you can only access through this specific organization, often for payment, often with a major financial burden on its members. We have an insular structure, and a level of manufactured ecstasy that seems to come from whatever these beliefs do for people. We, we've got sashes. We have, you know, industries, uh, organizations that uh, attempt to attract those who are suffering. Uh, under the guise of helping them, they have also the ability to abuse power and manipulate your weakness by selling you false hope. On that note, I'd add a third bubble here that is MLMs, right? There's a there, there's a theme here of telling people they're meant for more, they should want for more, they need more, they are not enough, they are missing something. And then the reinforcement of the things that they already know they are missing, and then create a, a, a cycle, a pathway of continuously... Uh, upholding this I- impossible idea of a thing they are looking for, of this thing they are missing, and then magnifying this thing they are missing and making it the focal point, the person begins to obsess about that thing's absence from their life in a way that they wouldn't if it wasn't being constantly talked about and focused on and reinforced. We have the destruction of one's self-esteem to make a person wholly dependent on, perhaps addicted to, this self-help group, this religion, this organization that alleges the only answer to their problems is to go deeper, further, to pay more, to pray more, to be more involved, to get to the next level, to get to the temple, whatever it is. Like, there's so many similarities in how there are extremities in both self-help and religion, just as there are neutral grounds in self-help and religion that legitimately do help people. I think faith, I think fellowship, I think community, I think reading literature, I think listening to licensed professionals, credentialed advice, legitimate pastors and theologians and, and, and members of faith that have good intentions. My God, of course that is all there. But we also have the extremes, and the extremes have the ability to abuse their power over vulnerable people looking for more, who are suffering, who are seeking what is missing in their life, and they reinforce those insecurities 
by promising that they can guarantee something that is abstract in nature and unprovable and intangible and perhaps not even in this life. When you take abstract uh, concepts that are not static human experiences or, or destinations in nature, like happiness or success or in the church's case, salvation, when you hang these abstract hopes over people's heads that you claim you have the answer to, the secret to, you hold the keys to, y- your your path is, is the journey to that destination. When you suggest that you, your program, your organization, your methodology is what's missing between the, where the person is and where they ultimately want to be and provide them the false hope that where they want to be is actually realistic and attainable and provable within their circumstances, they will forever chase that thing. Put more money, more time, more energy, recruit people into that thing. They will believe so deeply in the idea of something, but more so than the, the ideal or destination or you know state of being that you're working toward. You'll believe so deeply that you are flawed, you are unworthy, you, you, you are broken. Because these people are in the business of broken people. Because people who are doing great don't need their services. More so self-help than religion. Somebody who's doing fine is not going to dump a lot of time, money, energy, and recruit other people for a program. Somebody whose self-esteem has been detonated does. And they create systems and pathways and programs to reinforce insecurities, to magnify the absence of what you should be doing or having or what you're capable of in your life, to make sure you're consistently shamed and made aware of your shortcomings in an effort to keep you in a system that's never going to get you what you want, but you reach a point where you've sunk in too much time and energy to go back. It's like a bridge where every board you step, it breaks and you can't turn around. This is how self-help programs get you. This is how MLMs get you. This is how cult-like extremist religions get you. Every element of your life and community is so enveloped in this one thing, you shed your personal identity for the cult identity. And when I say cult, I think it can apply to so many things besides cults, because there's the literal definition of a cult, and then there's the highly stigmatized uh, colloquial version of cult that we associate with, like, the Rajneeshis in Wild Wild Country, even though I think a head-to-toe maroon look is fierce as hell. You know, that, that, that documentary was alarming. The Branch Davidians in Waco, alarming. The Heaven's Gate, alarming. Uh, obviously, Nexium, alarming. Th- these things are not desirable by any stretch. But when you look at the characteristics of a cult, by definition, when you look at the bite model, a lot of things are super culty. And I think that's really interesting because we've all been a part of something that slowly but surely indoctrinated us into believing we had to do or say or be this sort of thing without realizing it. And typically the great part about not being an official cult is, you know, at will, the ability to leave, you know, not taking too much of your time or money where it's irreparable. But in many cases, I think these things are really slippery slopes. And when you think about cults, no one no one joins a cult. Nobody literally is like, I'm going to join a cult. No, they, they, they slowly slide into an organization that they really think is virtuous and they really think is going to help them and don't realize what's really going on until they're in way too deep. And I'm kind of obsessed with this concept of any of us kind of unknowingly sliding into something that we don't ultimately know is hugely problematic. And it kind of speaks to how it's difficult for members of certain, you know, churches or denominations to overlook all of the um, faults of the organization in favor of 
of their version or the, or the one they know or their traditions and comfort that they find within it. This is something I struggle with in the Catholic Church because I feel like a hypocrite because I, you know, I take comfort in my traditions. I, I like to go on occasion. I find it meditative. I got married in a church. I'm not really religious anymore, but I find myself able to compartmentalize all the wrongdoings of the priests, even though I think they're abhorrent and they keep me up at night and I'm furious. But I've stepped into a church since then. Why is that? So when I see cults and people like these problematic, charismatic, uh, manipulative leaders doing all these awful things to people, I'm like, how would somebody ever turn a blind eye or step foot? And I'm like, well, we all do that all the time in different ways. We talk things up to a few bad apples and press forward. It's, uh, it's really interesting to me. And I think that more so than covering like the juicy sex scandal details or the dietary restrictions or the Alice and Mac of it all, there's a lot of interesting layers to this. But I think for me, what I find most interesting is like the art of brainwashing, the science of the psychology of brainwashing, the the subtle things that they're, they did to people in these intensive ESP courses that y- people didn't notice. Like, I'm interested in the BITE model. Uh, the B, it's an acronym for the elements of behavioral, informational, thought, and emotional control that are typically signs that you are part of an organization that could be considered a cult. I want to highlight that I think we've all been parts of things that fall into a lot of these categories. Now, it might be easier than you think. Is my my desire isn't necessarily to empathize with like a Sarah or a Mark, the the, the key characters. So I, I stand Bonnie. I think like she really went with her intuition and she was really the brave one in all of this. Um, I, I don't know, you guys. I think that I struggle because a lot of the coverage is like the what, uh, the, the what it was, what it meant, what happened, blah, blah, blah. And that's interesting, too. You can watch the show for that. I'm kind of almost more interested in like the how. How does this happen? Can we as humans identify with these people that somehow got themselves involved in this like should we believe for a second that they weren't you know wholly complicit and criminal in their own right or are they are they victims i side at the the victim piece uh, hugely because i i think that this isn't as hard as it looks and when it's presented as this like monstrosity of an organization you're kind of like why were you complicit with that it just seems so wrong and it is and the recruiting of people into the sex labor i mean don't even get me started there's criminal activity on criminal activity and this is the problem with pyramid schemes But anyway, guys, I guess my point is, I don't know if this will be like the recap show you wanted, but I do want to go into some different elements that I find fascinating. And um, the irony is just so not lost on me that I'm a person talking to people about how you shouldn't listen to people. But like my life hinges upon you listening to me. And I just hope you always know, like, I want to keep you company. I don't want to tell you how to live your life because I can't because no one can. We're all we're too dynamic. We're too different. We're everyone needs something different. And the the second a person tells you that there's a shortcut or a, a you know get rich quick scheme or there's a one size fits all solution is when you need to put your guard up right like I think that's that's just so important for us to like learn from these tactics and to be more cautious about who we let in who we pay uh, and who where we legitimately think our sources of self improvement can come from to me it really is more of a function of compounded experiences. Uh, that we kind of cater to our own lives because we all need different things. And the second we try to arbitrarily fit ourselves into a bed in a bag self-help solution is when we get ourselves into trouble because it can't factor in the incredible nuance and, and the layers of the human experience that just inevitably has so many ups and downs that we need to be okay with. Other people are in pain, like everyone's suffering. Like 
life is not easy. And I think we got to normalize that first before we normalize uh, soaring, flying, there's not a star in heaven that we can't reach mentalities that MLMs and and, and, and self-help programs seem to uh, be selling to us that make us think we're falling short as if we need more reason to feel insecure. You know what I mean? Be careful of who you trust, right? Anyway, guys, uh, on that note, uh, small ad break. You know who you can trust? Mental health professionals. BetterHelp is a really cool company that matches you with a licensed board accredited counselor or therapist and allows you to get online counseling or therapy from the comfort of your grand millennial couch, if you so wish. It's an online therapy service that from the comfort of your own home without the intimidation of a waiting room or my god can you imagine having to call around i hate talking on the phone you can avoid all of that discomfort that kind of prevents people i think oftentimes from really uh starting up with with therapy or counseling and better help they, they facilitate great therapeutic matches so it's easy and free to change counselors if needed which is huge too because if you don't vibe with somebody it's, it's like oh, you're starting from scratch to change therapists and it becomes a whole thing and this is so much more convenient than not traditional offline counseling it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and they have specialists in truly so many different fields from anxiety stress depression relationships sleeping trauma anger lgbtq matters family conflict grief self-esteem anything you share is confidential and by the way, you don't even, nothing needs to be wrong to go to therapy. I'm a huge proponent of just like a physical or, or doctor checkup. You, you need to pay just as much attention to your mental health as your physical. I just want you to start, you know, living your best life, whatever that looks like for you, whatever would be helpful for you to move forward. And uh, it's not a crisis line. I do want to remind you of that. But so many people have been using this that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states, which is really cool. So as a listener, you can get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash be there in five. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be there in five. Where was I? Uh, oh, yeah. So, if okay, if you're not familiar with the bite model, I think this is interesting. It's just a good thing to be aware of. That actually a listener alerted me to um, that I hadn't really I'd heard of, but not really like read the details of what is the, the details of the specific types of control that organizations that could ring uh, true as a cult will typically be comprised of and you don't have to meet all this criteria and like i said earlier it stands for the types of control that a leader or group will attempt to have over you uh, that typically qualify as cult-like behavior it stands for behavioral control informational control thought control and emotional control and when you read through the bite model like behavioral it's like uh regulates your the individual's reality dictates where how and with whom the member lives and associates uh, dictates when, how, and with whom the member has sex, controls types of clothing and hairstyles, of diet, uh, manipulation or deprivation of sleep. They restrict leisure, entertainment, or vacation time. Just some examples. Uh, you don't have to meet all the criteria, like I said. Um, there, so it's as like simple as you know, requiring permission for major decisions, all the way to beating, torture, rape, imprisonment, mur murder. I mean, like there's a real spectrum here. But the point is kind of like behavioral control starts at controlling your decision making right taking away your agency and can end somewhere far more uh, dire sinister and tragic if you're not careful informational control is like deception that the minimizing of discouraging or access to non-cult sources of information like not being allowed to read opposing thoughts ideals or criticisms of the thing that you believe in 
um, of the compartmentalization of insider versus outsider doctrines, like almost encouraging like a superiority of like, we know things other people don't and you're obligated to secrecy, but also know that people on the outside don't understand or are going to hell or whatever it is. Um, just to, so, some examples. Thought control is uh, requiring people to to internalize the group's doctrine as truth. Um, your, your a shift in your concept of reality, uh, shift in your what, how you define good and evil, uh, or you know, ultimately changing your identity, adopting a cult identity over an individual identity, um, like language and cliches, which kind of stop critical thoughts or or, or rebrand really common themes as something else and unique and proprietary to the cult. Um, your memories are manipulated and false memories are created. Uh, they teach a lot of thought stopping techniques that like shut down your reality. Even things, you know, things like chanting, meditating, praying, speaking in tongues, all, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then emotional control is a lot of what we talked about earlier in the overlap with self-help in terms of like, you're not living up to your potential. Your, your, your past is suspect, guilt with your identity, like your your thoughts and feelings or actions are irrelevant or selfish or not in the right places. You make people feel like their problems are always their own fault. It's never the leader's fault. It's never the group's fault. It's never your circumstances. It's everything that happens to you is up to you and you have control for your success or your failure. Well, it's similar to the, in the thought control piece that also overlaps here in terms of emotion stopping and um, kind of manipulating and narrowing the range of feelings you're allowed to feel and feeling scared to think independently, to being scared of the outside world. Um, being scared of like losing your salvation, uh, forcing you to a ritualistic published confession, public confession of like sins or, or wrongdoings. In the more extreme sense, it's it's like, you know, terrible consequences if you leave, like saying you're going. I mean, honestly, most religions fall into this going to hell uh, or, you know, worse consequences that can happen to you or, you know, just the. People always finding a never like a legitimate reason for other people to leave, um, saying that if you leave, you're weak, you're undisciplined, you're brainwashed by somebody on the outside. Uh, you know, worse if somebody that ever threat threatens to uh, harm an ex member or family member. Um, you, there's an indoctrination of irrational fears that uh, make you question if you would ever be able to leave. Right. So these, a lot of these are extreme examples. Um, I glossed over. They're, they're so much lengthier. I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, but what's so interesting is that it's darkest. Like, yeah, like cult-tastic, like w violations of, of human rights, of abuses of power, flagrant uh, emotional and physical traumas people endure. It's truly awful. But at the other end of the spectrum, at its most abstract and, and light, you know, if you can call it that, there's so many things that fall into this framework that it's pretty interesting to think about because so many aspects of religion that want to keep you there or want your money or want strength in numbers or, I don't know, want control over you or of women's bodies. I mean, that's a big part of it I think we need to think about in terms of the religious uh, and spiritual organizations we affiliate with. But beyond that, I was like, <laughs> I was hanging out with somebody, with friends the other night. And the we're talking about the vow and neuro NLP neuro linguistic programming was brought up and uh, one of our friends was like uh, I mean I kind of was part of a cult I was in a fraternity it meets a lot of the criteria and I was like huh and then when I went back and revisited the bite model I was like oh okey doke 
in an effort to not throw my own sorority under the bus, because as you know, I've, I've, I, had a, I had a positive experience. I love to laugh about it. It's a very weird thing when you look back and how short of a time that was in your life versus the impact you thought it would ultimately have. And I don't mean it doesn't. I made incredible friends, but I mean, in terms of how scared we were of getting in trouble, of, of, of the consequences of not following these rules that were just enforced by our peers on power trips. If you're into this topic, I did a four-hour, two-part deep dive on sororities where I crowdsource people's crazy stories. And it's probably one of my favorite series I've ever done just because I think for most people, they can e equally like look back with uh, you know such sentimental uh, value and think about how fun of a time that was in life. But they can also equally eye roll pretty hard at how ridiculous a lot of the requirements of being in a sorority are, especially the, the very high standards sororities are held to relative to what fraternities are held to. It's actually quite maddening if you really get into it, but I'll try not to. But just to give you like a few examples, and I I actually looked up the bylaws of other sororities that are pretty easily findable on the internet to make sure I wasn't just speaking from my own experience and to, in an effort to not throw my own sorority under the bus. But I mean, even thinking about like one of the first things in the behavioral section is controlling uh, where and with whom you live. It was one of our requirements to live in the house for one ca like academic year. I went abroad for half of it, so I got out of it. So I only lived in for a half semester. Hated it. I, that was like the worst I'd ever felt. I loved my roommate, but that the sorority house was not for me. But I didn't have a choice. Just like going through some of the other things on here. I mean, the financial burden on its members. You're required to pay like new member fees, initiation fees, uh, like that, whatever fees are for housing, in addition to your regular dues, you're fined for events you do not attend. You have to pay for every goddamn t-shirt, for every dumb philanthropy, every fraternity feels like throwing in the, even the anchor splash and the, you know, the, the mock rocks that you're not even cast when you wanted to do the group dance. You get scathing emails for not spending your time and not taking time away from your studies to go to like a Derby Days event. Meanwhile, you're fine if you don't go, if you had to study or you had to work. All the while, you have to be in good academic standing to even be eligible to be a member. And every meeting, I kid you not, one of the aspects of the bite model of the emotional control, I believe, is the uh, public confession of sins or like the shame or public humiliation of wrongdoing. Before every chapter meeting, they, somebody stood up and read out loud the people on bad academic standing are you like come on rachel knows she's getting d's we don't need to remind her here i'll i'll, I'll throw a prayer request as chaplain it's 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 pretty bad you guys and in the field of controlling like how you behave how you act how you speak what you look like how you represent the organization of prioritizing the uh group over the individual i mean everything was control like we could like we couldn't dance on elevated surfaces we couldn't get blackout drunk we had to act like a lady and be classy and a lot of sororities people submitted for the other podcast was like we couldn't we could only drink beers out of bottles uh not cans we couldn't be seen smoking we could we had to have at least one foot on the ground at all times if we were dancing so as to make sure we did not look trashy dancing on elevated services doing what's best for you is not prioritized so much as the image of the group is prioritized and this is not unique to sororities you have your own language you're sworn to secrecy i i, I think about be, like I, I we didn't do anything shady but like initiation for most people like you're probably wearing head to toe white you're probably in the dark you're probably chanting something and there's probably candlelight and there's probably a few weird things from the late 19th century that go down because that's when most sororities were founded and i don't know that's what they were doing back then things were a little weirder and it's kind of fun to be a part of something like secret and cool i felt like i'm part of the life and death brigade i'm i'm a regular rory gilmore I'm about to grab my umbrella and just mary poppins on down with the 
underrated character that is Logan Hunsberger relative to the monstrosity that is Dean and the unreliable person that is Jess, even though I like Jess uh, the most, but he's just not the best for Rory, if you know what I mean. I just think uh, Logan, despite having the potential to be a true asshole, was all things considered pretty nice. And again, he had that FU coffee cart money. I digress. Honestly, looking back, our behavior was controlled so meticulously, it's a little bit weird to me, especially in letters. We couldn't do anything in letters. We'd, we'd be acting like a freaking Daniel Tiger character. We'd be just like a Pollyanna, like wholesome material, communicating only in ways suitable for a preschooler that is bright and sunshiny, free of problems, uh, dimension, and really personality. Uh, just a couple more examples like that are specific. Uh, one of them is encouraging spying on other members in an extreme language sense, but like it says, uh, impose a body system to monitor and control another member, report deviant actions to uh, leadership, ensure that behavior is monitored by the group. Literally all of those things. Uh, the, we, we had a, like we definitely had buddy systems when we were pledging uh, people were encouraged to report people that weren't complying to standards. Like, sorties are the narkiest narcs of all the narcs. Um, people would 100% spy and tell on people what other members did. If any, like, look at the muffins. If anybody had known who ate the muffins, they would have told on them. And literally, they were doing so publicly by sending that email asking who ate the muffins. Uh, we had another thing that um, kind of falls under uh, this categories having like a symbol or a uh, means to control somebody's behavior that's like secretive and my pledge class raged against this so hard we put it on our senior crawl shirts senior year because we just didn't care we had like a character called mini may that if somebody wasn't being classy or was like acting out of turn and like blacking out drunk we'd be like mini may wants to see you and it was like y get your act together you floozy we are in southwest virginia and you need to start acting like it. Like, what? We were at a college bar in a tiny college town, as if it matters. And what prevents people from leaving, from not being a part of it? Oh, the threat of not being a part of it, because people probably won't talk to you. You won't get invited to things. You won't get to join in on things that are exclusively for members. The, the, you're completely ostracized and excluded if you formally leave the sisterhood. So in order to stay within the things that your social circle's doing and experiencing, you have to comply with a strict set of rules. And it is what it is. But I think I get fired up, too, and I will get off this tangent. But, like, we are, our housing was owned by this school. And yet the Panhellenic, the sororities, could not drink in the house. And we would get harshly punished for any indication of that. The fraternities could drink. They could do beer slides all the live long. They, they just raged until the, the late hours. But the dainty uh, females, my God, they couldn't participate in at-risk behavior. That would be, that would be, that would be déclassé, to quote Ramona Singer. The thing is, a lot of it's to keep you safe. But I think there's a bigger problems with... Uh, how preventatively women are given rules and regulations to keep them safe as the dainty flowers they are that all, uh, kind of indirectly uh, support that things just will happen to us. That if we put ourselves in certain situations, we have to accept the consequences. And there are elements of that sort of strict uh, strict lifestyle being imposed upon you that really robs you of your agency and decision making in a way that I think is unfair and kind of empowers the opposite sex or whatever dangerous situation you're trying to prevent to indeed take advantage of you just because you're there, just because you're drunk, just because you're X, Y, or Z, as if there's any justification for that sort of behavior being directed towards you. So instead of going to the party, instead of participating in the activity, instead of getting to dictate how we approach something, we're just withheld from it entirely. Like, and if you got kicked out or you did something wrong, the, the, the E of bite, the emotional control... That the making it scary to leave 
is completely legit. Because again, I, I, it's, I'm not saying it's a cult, but I am saying that when people were kicked out, the messaging was to not talk to them, to not associate, that you're not one of us. There's somebody who listens to this podcast sometime that's been incredibly kind and supportive of me that was kicked out of our sorority. And and looking back, I'm like, I hope I was kind and supportive to her because it really was like, you're with us, you're in or you're out. You mess up or you don't. Like, And I feel horrible that our response to somebody going through a difficult time would be shame and, and ostracizing instead of what it should be if sisterhood is our creed, which is solidarity and support. It's kind of this irony of everything that actually goes against what I deem to be true sisterhood. But again, I'm getting off topic. Okay, to bridge me to my next topic, uh, between Bite and my uh, experience over the weekend, um, actually that pertains to a lot, what happens to me a lot when I talk about the LDS church on the podcast. And it's a realization I didn't have until I understood this uh, model more, because these uh, sorts of behaviors, while collectively result in what you'd call a cult, individually, categorically, are ways people control people, which is what a lot of churches, religions, organizations try to do. And it is what it is. And I didn't make up the framework. But one of these things does apply to both my sorority and I believe what happens to people in the LDS church, which is why I get such bizarre feedback from people. So, okay, long story short, uh, something I always thought was funny is that when I pledged the sorority, they told us like a lot of this secret information has never been written down. It's only been passed down. It's only verbal. And when you get to initiation and you've done all the the training, you've attended all the meetings, you've fulfilled all your requirements, blah, blah, blah. Your kind of reward is like seeing the ins and outs of this ritual that is really cool and meaningful. And, you know, there's things that obviously fall in this category, like handshakes and symbols and, you know, all the things. But um, beyond that, one of the things is this like acronym that is like a secret code that's really like meaningful to the sisterhood that allegedly nobody else knows and you can't Google and it's never been written, and you only find it out if you do everything you're supposed to get to initiation. So what did I do? I never looked. I never looked. Because I was told not to, because I'm a rule follower, and I wanted to honor the ritual. I told this to Greg. I was like, yeah, it's whatever. We have this, like, secret code. Like, nobody knows what it means. I can't tell you. I'm so sorry. You're not a sister. But, like, it's really special. This was, like, years after I graduated. Like, at least a couple years. I don't remember. Um. Anyways, he lo- just grabs his phone, looks it up, and recites to me word for word what it is. And I'm like, oh, well, I guess somebody, since, you know. Between 1890 and now, I uh, guess somebody must have put it on the internet. I can't believe it. And like, I was kind of like, wait, that's hilarious that like I could have probably found this stuff out the whole time and I never thought to look. Not really similarly, but something I learned about the LDS church um, that again, not every parish or ward rather, not every bishop, but so as we've talked about, um, the you have to get a temple recommend to be able to go to the temple where some of the the for lack of a better term like rituals are performed the sacred activities uh the chapels are where the church services are the temples are where like weddings occur baptisms of the living and dead endowments like all the important super secret exciting things i guess that uh, they withhold from members until you're old enough you're married and you're a full tithe member and you pass a certain set of requirements that are, are called a temple recommend and your bishop uh, regularly like interviews you maybe it's annually and there's a series of questions that make you eligible for a temple recommend one of these questions is do you participate or i guess i'll just read it i don't want to uh, mince words it's the seventh question do you, it's on churchofjesuschrist.org do you support or promote any teachings practices or doctrine contrary to those of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints number 10 as we talked about two weeks like three weeks ago are you a full tithe payer the ex-mormon uh, kira I interviewed on my podcast who i love um there that's on patreon she talked about how her uh, mom didn't come, couldn't come to her wedding because she wasn't a full tithe payer and she was a smoker. 
Um, so yeah, anyways, these are the questions asked that allow you to get a temple recommend. One of them is, do you obey the law of chastity? I mean, you know, they, they go in there and apparently people feel uncomfortable lying, which is very different than the youth groups I grew up in. Um, but anyway, I say that because this was a really interesting learning for me because whenever I talk about the LDS church on the podcast, I get messages and emails from uh, Mormons saying stuff like in their commentary. I'm always like, I didn't say that. Like, I didn't say that at all. Like, I, I'm always feeling like I'm, I'm crazy because they're suggesting I said or did something uh, contrary to their, their doctrine or beliefs that I didn't if they actually listened. And it's kind of always bothered me and it always happens. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, I don't know this for a fact, but there's part of me that wonders if some of the more devout members that feel so compelled to reach out and send me uh, videos from General Conference and like scripture, if they, when they see I'm talking about their church, they can't listen because then they can't honestly look a bishop in the eye and say they haven't been participating or um, rather supporting or promoting any teachings, practices, or doctrines contrary to those of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because I'm technically saying stuff about their doctrine that I disagree with and it's contrary. So I'm like, maybe they don't actually listen. They assume what I'm going to say and that's why they're giving me such weird feedback that has nothing to do with what I said. It's kind of interesting. My point is kind of that the definition of cult isn't this um, highly stigmatized colloquial version that we associate with like, you know, Heaven's Gate. It actually is much looser and can start in a much like lighter format. And I think and I use these examples because that's what I think is important to pay attention to. In any religion or organization I bring up that has these characteristics, I'm really not trying to be offensive. But to be fair, this is a psychological model with specific tenets that a lot of churches and organizations just happen to exhibit because there's an element of control in these types of things. And that's all the bite, mo bite model is. It's like, yes, about cults, but what it is is a framework to identify specific methods that are used to recruit and maintain control over people. And think about the way so many aspects of religion are designed to control women. And I'm not talking about religions that aren't mine unfairly. See the four-hour special I did condemning my own upbringing with purity culture. I truly am not targeting anybody here. I have this problem across the board. Because another thing that people use to control people is to make them feel deeply flawed, unworthy, and broken. And this is ties into MLMs and self-help. In terms of like, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, sweetly broken, holy surrender. Like, you're a sinner, you're unworthy, get on your knees. You need to, you know, penance, forgiveness. Like, so much of religion is just like, makes you feel awful and reminds you that like you're unworthy and it like kind of tears you down no matter what you're told until the day you die you will be a sinner and it's this interesting thing of like you're you're assumed a sinner by default just because of how you know the nature of christianity at least which fine but then the control that is you know often exhibited through uh, the requirements of how women women act, how they stay pure, how they dress, that they must maintain their virginity for their one true husband, that all the, you know, kind of rules placed around, like, not defiling yourself when, like, you haven't even done anything and how much value and worth is placed on your purity when you're not even a sexual creature, you're just a female trying to get through middle school. Um, these are things that, like, are designed to control the way you think and act and behave in accordance with your religion. For some people, faith is a primary tenet of how they operate. For others, it's not, and they want their own decision-making ability. And this is what I find so fascinating is people that don't get to make these choices and, who, and whose entire worldview is, is a product of other people's messaging and not their own firsthand experience. So a full-on cult, no, 
should we recognize when there are attempts for people to control you? Yeah. Because I think there are a lot of great churches and religions and things you can associate yourself with that respect you as a person with free will. Uh, Do you have to live under rules? Sure. Uh, That's not unusual. But control is different from guidelines. Force and coercion are are different from suggestion and recommendation. There are fine lines. And and this sort of analysis helps you kind of see how fine those things really are and how, depending on how you look at it, things can be very different from what they seem. And uh, to kind of loop back, the reason I um, started digging back into this bite model and uh, kind of got obsessive about methodology of brainwashing as it relates to this control we're talking about exhibited through the bite model happened over the weekend when I was in Michigan with my in-laws. Long story short, I talked about this on Instagram and I promised you I'd follow up with you. There's no like big punchline or or the story is less about something definitive and more of like a means to an end that just kind of ties in. But um, so in the fall, we go on a trip like, you know, somewhere with foliage, go wine tasting with my in-laws. It's so much fun. And uh, my husband has three sisters and they're amazing. And we have like the best time just like wine tasting, playing games, whatever. So this house, we were staying on a lake and across the lake, we got there like uh, at night and there was this huge um, like white house that had a really unusual architecture, almost was like Spanish mission style. It um, was very large, but it didn't look like a home. It had a big cross on it. It kind of had this like weird uh, facade that I wish I understood architecture to tell you what it looked look like, but it just was not typical for the area, and it did not look like a home. Um, we kind of were like interested in this house. It's very like uh, Callaway Mansion across the you know lake, and it takes two. When they thought Clarice Kensington was a ghost with her cucumber eyes, her white face mask, and the towel on her head. Uh, but we got, we had binoculars, and so we looked across at the house, and the house was boarded up on Thursday, like straight up boarded. I can't, I wouldn't make that up. We we all saw it. I remember thinking, that's weird. We're not, this is not, we're in the Midwest. This is not hurricane season. Um, like, you know, it must be abandoned. That's really kind of the only reason I assume a house would be boarded outside of renovations. So we wake up the next day and the creepy house uh, is we look over and the boards are down, completely taken down, like overnight in the dark, like kind of weird. So we were, we were kind of looking at it. We do some research just out of curiosity, because, again, it's just like not a normal looking house. And the person that is last associated with that address, there's very little about this house on the Internet. The person last associated with that address died in 2016. There's no exchange of hands like of, of property. There's no property sale. There's no property value. The real estate sites, the tax assessment sites, everything, like, there's very little to no trace of this property on the Internet. That's hard to figure out if it's like actually a home or affiliated with a church or whatever. So we're just like having fun and getting suspicious. But again, we kind of thought it was abandoned outside of the boards being taken down. That night we're sitting there by the window and we like freak out because the lights turn on and we're like, oh, my God, so he's there. We don't like see any activity or shadows, but different lights and different rooms go on and off. At one point, Greg's mom is talking about this like one tower area and as she's talking about the tower the light goes on the tower we all like freak out it was kind of a just a fun thing where we were probably being dramatic but it was kind of spooky and uh we really couldn't find out much about it except greg's sister could figure out the address by looking at the satellite because there was no google street view also a little bit weird um but if you look at the satellite you could pinpoint the address by just being able to see exterior features of this place so the next the the day after that um we're like let's just drive over there and like see what the deal is we're just getting so curious because again lights you know lights went on and off and stayed on but there was no like shadows or activity really doesn't look like a normal home very little trace on the internet we go across the way 
uh, to try to see like where the point of access is to the house. And we see a few mailboxes close to its address and like a really, really long driveway. Like you couldn't even see the end of. It was actually kind of a beautiful tunnel of foliage, if I'm honest. I wanted to stop for a photo shoot if I wasn't worried for my safety. Uh, but none of those, the, none of the mailboxes on the driveway are have the address. And when you go down a little ways, like in like the side of the highway, that's just kind of like forest. There's this one other mailbox that's just floating there that has no driveway attached to it. It's just a floating mailbox. And that is the address of the weird house slash church slash building. And we were like, oh, my God, there's it's not attached to any driveway. Like, there, where's the point of access? Where's the entry? Like, we we're like, OK, this is really strange. We also notice um, that it is on the property of an offshoot of um, an Adventist church, a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, I don't, could you call it a de- denomination? Um, and when you go on the website, it's actually not e- even a- an offshoot of Seventh-day Adventist that is endorsed by the Adventist church. It's like, I think, an extremist group that actually specializes in unreachable or uncontactable peoples, which you don't even want to know how I, f- I mean, like... I, if they were with the people that go to like uh, corners of the world to evangelize to uncontacted tribes, to evangelize to s- like small communities that have l- very little access or interaction with the modern world, forget the religious piece. The, my frustration knows no bounds with the arrogance, audacity, and straight up danger of taking your germs and your potential diseases to people that have no immunity built up to anything that the modern world has to offer. And in the in the name of, of evangelizing, in the name of converting them to Jesus, as if you know what's best for them, their culture, their customs, their beliefs, like, my God, projecting your Western values onto these people that don't even have contact with the modern world? Are you kidding me? The bigotry, the nonsense, it drives me absolutely insane. But even if you want to argue there's a cause for mission work, I will never, ever be comfortable with the cause just in terms of the health, health risk alone to the lack of immunity these people have. At the very best, it's irresponsible. At the very worst, you're you're risking a cause of genocide, truly. And so then I get fired up about this. I'm like, oh, no, no. And so then I'm thinking that this house is associated with this church. Naturally, I go home. We're like sitting around having fun. And for me, fun is uh, opening 47 tabs about the Seventh-day Adventist church. Interestingly enough, uh, per my intrigue uh, with different religions, when you look at like the way they're classified from Baptist and Congregationalist, to Pentecostal churches, Orthodox, um, Quakers, Unitarians, uh, Lutheran, Dutch Reformed, all these things. There's almost this like separate category that consists of Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, and Jehovah's Witnesses, even just from the context of them all being uh, started in the 1800s around the same time, mid-19th century, um, you know, in the Northeast, or this, uh, I think Adventists were in Battle Creek, Michigan, not that far from each other in a like, specific part of the world around a certain time, there was a lot of different offshoots of faiths. Apparently, even though these are three very different um, like denominations, if you will, of Christianity, they follow like similar structures that I guess was popular of religious offshoots that were established in the mid-19th century. Uh, for example, there's a very serious requirement of commitment to a narrow set of doctrines, uh, you're told, uh, like, you, you kind of ha- you have to dress modestly, you can't drink, you can't smoke, um, you know, curse, you have to live a very pure lifestyle, you're held very accountable to that pure lifestyle. It, you, it's very, like, insular and um, kind of uh, teach, it's like, it's superior in a sense that they, the, that all three of those, I guess, teach that your uh, salvation hinges on your membership in that specific sect, in that specific denomination. Um, but they depart from a lot of the uh, main teachings and f- followings of, you know, other Christian denominations. 
and in this time in the mid-19th century, developed, you know, had different disciples, prophets, whatever you want to call them, people develop outside extra biblical scripture that they now follow, still follow in modern day, that is outside of what uh, other Christians adhere to. So then, of course, I'm interested. I'm on board. I'm like, oh, I don't know much about Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, I don't know any besides Ben Carson or Elaine Kim's mom and Gilmore Girls. I start to deep dive. What do I find? I'm already, I have cults on the brain. We've been watching The Vow. We think this house is creepy. It's on the property of an extremist sector of Seventh-day Adventism that doesn't even endorse that sector, and they have to say so on their website, which is just a little bit weird. Um, And then I come to find out an extremist offshoot of Seventh-day Adventists was a group called the uh, Branch Davidians, led by David Cornish. Is that how you say his last name? Uh, who thought he was the final prophet of Seventh-day Adventists, who started this Branch Davidian sect that you might be familiar with because of the miniseries Waco, because of the four documentaries, uh, like uh, Madman or Messiah. Uh, there's one called The Rules of Engagement. Um, I don't know. There's one. There's a lot of stuff about this Waco siege. It's it's uh, There's some weird linkage to um, Timothy McVeigh citing it as the like in motivation for the Oklahoma City bombing, like it's kind of a, a weird cult situation that is embedded in pop culture that I was like aware of that is it's so dark um, and it's worth looking into. But uh, I had no idea that it was an offshoot of Seventh-day Advent- Adventists uh, church, uh, to be fair, an offshoot is an offshoot. Like I, 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 don't, I would not claim so many extremist uh, sectors of, you know, more uh, fundamentalist, Pentecostal, evangelical, you know, forms of Christianity that uh, do things that I've never grown up nor agreed with practicing. So you can't really say these things are the same. But of course, it kind of is a weird connection where my mind is like, you know, sees the house, sees Adventist, sees a comparison to like it being around the time and having similar tenets to like what created Mormonism. And Mormonism has extreme offshoots and, you know, people that practice polygamy and stuff, just like Christians have offshoots that speak in tongues, just like Adventists have like this Waco dude. We all have our problems. Um, But it just was an interesting coincidence given where the house was. Anyway, I spent all this time doing this research. I'm like fascinated. I'm going deep on Seventh-day Adventists. I learn a lot. Not the time, not the place. Uh, But what I should have done the whole time is ask the Beths. The, you know, am I hesitant to use that name because we're talking about cults? Absolutely. And more on that later. Uh, But all that means is it's just people in the Facebook group have called like listeners or a way to identify people um, because of, you know, my handle and the podcast name without spaces is Beth Aaron five. And people always call me Beth. And I just think it's funny that people think that's my name. Anyway, so the last night I was there about this house after doing all this research and being like so sure it's a Seventh Day Adventist cult. um, I asked the Beths. And uh, within five minutes on Instagram, I hear from a, uh, a private investigator uh, and an architectural historian that are like, oh, I'll figure it out. I'll let you know. And uh, within five minutes, they report back. I also hear from another person who used to live in the area, recognized the house and was like, oh, a huge part of this community. Well, really all over the state, like there's a huge Seventh-day Adventist presence, very different levels of extremities than differences in restrictive lifestyles. Uh, but this person had seen this house before and noticed that it uh, like didn't know what it was, always thought it was kind of weird and also had noticed that it was it was boarded on and off throughout the year. And like they then she specifically said she couldn't pick up on a pattern of why it would or would not be boarded at a given time. And I was like, OK, there's some validation by a local that also agrees this is weird, but funny that they also don't know what it is. But the kind of joke of it all is it ends up actually not being associated with the Adventist, but it still is a weird tie to a church but just not that one that it was like on the property next to. Anyways, this is not even that important, but (laughs) whatever. Um, 
so the 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 two people that yeah, they can act it's all public record by the way but like a lot of this stuff isn't easily searchable uh, and you have to know the right places to look and uh long story short one person's like okay so it's in a living trust of this person that was like the family of the guy who died her guess was to it's kind of a, a weird big house they probably the family didn't know what to do with it they probably boarded it up to avoid squatters and vandalism and cut off the access point from a driveway so people couldn't find it or access it still doesn't answer why the boards came down still doesn't answer why like there were lights on and off sometimes or went dark for that full day and we couldn't see anybody inside Still doesn't answer why like I, you'd still need to get there some I, I don't know whatever um, it still doesn't really explain to me too, like the, why the house looks like that. Why the, well, who put a big cross on their home? Um, and anyway, so she, she's like, I don't think, I think it's just like a weird house, like bottom line. I was like, you know, what? I kind of thought it was like a weird house or a weird house being used for religious purposes. So that, that helps to know that it's like, at least in the trust of somebody, the other person's like, okay, so I pull property records like constantly for a living. I've literally never, ever seen somebody take out a mortgage from a place that was not uh, like a, a bank or a credit union, but the family that has like different properties associated with this place has uh, took out a loan for their like mortgage from a church, but it's not the church I thought it was. It's some random non-denominational church that literally loaned them the money for the guy whose name is attached to this house for like the property next to it. So I don't even think the church loaned them the money for the house with a cross on it. So long story short it's like completely inconclusive we all acknowledge it's a weird house the boarding's weird the lack of access is weird the there's no real estate records because it's never been sold it was built in the 80s though it's not that old and um it's just never been sold or passed along and it's never ever been renovated and there are zero permits taken out on it which you know doesn't uh allegedly could address like oh they're boarded for renovations but there's no permits people do illegal renovations i'm sure but who the hell knows? So long story short, it's it's still it's still creepy, but apparently it's not it's not part of this uh, one church I thought it was. But I still don't feel good about it, knowing that this family took out their mortgage and a loan from the church with their uh, occupations not being members of the clergy. I think in the olden days, maybe or in some cases, I'm sure churches like help their uh, priests or pastors or I don't know like maybe buy a home but it's just like kind of not normal for a gorgeous huge lakefront property and the property assessment is insanely low like it is it is nowhere close to what a lakefront property at that size would go for and uh it, th there's just a lot of weirdness with it so anyway it actually doesn't even matter but I'm telling you how I tied all this together and why I deep dove because when I was deep diving to Seventh-day Adventist and I was so sure this was a cult house and I thought it was a weird coincidence that we were there that weekend I also was seeing, I was reach, reading through controversy about the Seventh-day Adventists. And again, there's variation, there's extremes. If you are one of them, I'm not saying that this is all of you. I'm just saying this is what I read on like Wikipedia and the like. Um, there's there's like controversy of tactics used that involve hypnosis and involve uh, something called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. This is something that is used openly by people like Tony Robbins, who calls it the secret to his success, but is also used by people like Keith Raniere and Nancy Salzman to essentially manipulate, brainwash, and mind control people into convincing them to join their professional development organization that eventually turned into a really problematic sex cult. I'm, I weigh more than the details of the abuse and the collateral and the blackmail and the gross things he had the women do. I am just so damn interested in the process of, okay, you are invited to an ESP intensive. 
under the guise of professional development, under wanting to just like do better, be better, live better, communicate better, do better business. How do you get sucked in? How do they trick you? How does this creepy, goobery guy trick you that he's some sort of enlightened one? How do you start calling him Vanguard? How, how, how are you playing volleyball from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m.? How are you a alleged, well-adjusted, normal, semi-successful person that just like the rest of us is a wandering soul looking for more? How do you get sucked into a giant pyramid scheme cult that ends up having such a sinister, sinister intent from a man who deeply, deeply hates, resents, and wants to humiliate women by having them as a sex slave calling him master and limiting their diet, starving them, limiting their sleep, limiting their freedoms and having them be at your beck and call at all hours of the day just to just for fun, for torture. And meanwhile, they think they're there at will. How the hell does that happen? So then weirdly, I kind of was like researching a lot about this NLP and hypnosis. And uh, then when the vow finale came out, it was kind of this interesting intersection of like, wow, uh, just as I was kind of like, this seems like all of my interests, religion, self-help gurus, and cults, literally NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, is used by religions, cults, and self-help gurus and personal in, like improvement uh, types of programs. And I just think it's really interesting that it's not just my anecdotal through line of the types of behaviors I see exhibited, literally the methodology the, the, the scientific psychological approach to control is is uh, the same tactic that's hugely controversial. Uh, I'll explain a little bit about NLP and mind control and the tactics. And I might go into detail that could be a little bit boring, but I think it's worth visiting because I don't know if I've like I know people have covered this at length. But I just probably haven't listened. And again, I'm sorry for telling that Michigan story. I feel like it was irrelevant. But anyway, I promised you I'd follow up <laughs> and. Something's still weird, right? I, I just don't know. Please don't ask me for the address and just look like literally the people that would know what's up. Like they would, there's information I'm not telling you because I just I don't know. I don't I feel like a little bit weird about revealing too much about it. But uh, it's nothing like really that solvable. I just think there's a lot of creepy places that were probably bought under mysterious circumstances. And if I can get to the bottom of it, I want to. But unfortunately, it, when it's the property's never exchanged hands or really had to be involved with much publicly. And even the locals think it's weird. There's not like a ton I can do. Um but, okay, back to mind control. <laughs> now for a quick ad break, now that we're an hour in. Um, and you're going to want to listen to this because they have something good to offer. This episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. It's kind of crazy how close we are to Thanksgiving to think about how far we've made it into 2020. And I honestly must say that, like, it just would be... It just would be so 2020 for there to, there to be, like, no turkeys, drawn out of turkeys. Something happened with the turkeys and you can't get one. And it's just me in my home just, like, stabbing away with a fork at some deli meat. Uh, I don't want that for my life or yours. And I, I just don't know what the limitations of grocery stores and stock, what the turkey set is going to be. Today's sponsor, ButcherBox, this Thanksgiving is going to give you something to be extra grateful for, which I will tell you shortly. But first, as you know, ButcherBox is a curated selection of high quality meat that's delivered to your door. It's free of antibiotics and added hormones. Each box is 9 to 11 pounds of meat. There's enough for 24 individual meals. And it's packed fresh, ship frozen and vacuum sealed. So it stays that way. I, I just got my box. This my this month, I got lobster. I got ribeye. I got a tri-tip steak. We make a lot of meat. We love to sous vide. We do steak Sundays. It's like a no-brainer for us because not only do we love uh, being able to support these ethical farms that treat the animals well and that have 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and the like, um, it also is really convenient to get shipped right to our door. And it's a really affordable and convenient way to get healthy and humanely raised meat for just $6 a meal. But this Thanksgiving, what's different this time, ButcherBox is offering new members a turkey for free in their first box. 
<laughs> it's an entire turkey for free in your first box. That is so cool. So if you want to have a memorable Thanksgiving, no matter where you are, who you're with, or what you're fighting about, I'll feel a lot less chicken walking into my Thanksgiving scenario if I know I have a big turkey waiting for me. And if you want an entire turkey for free in first box, go to butcherbox.com slash be there in five. That's butcherbox.com slash be there in five for new members to get a free turkey for free in their first box. Butcherbox.com slash be there in five. While we're here, I want to thank another one of our sponsors. Thank you guys for allowing me to, uh, you know, get paid for this wonderful job I love so much by these incredible sponsors. The next one is Rothy's. I love Rothy's. We've worked with them for a while. They want you to get cozy this fall with comfortable, washable, and sustainable products. They have stylish, uh, sustainable shoes and bags that are carefully crafted with eco-friendly materials. And as I've told you before, I think this is the coolest thing ever. They're made from repurposed plastic water bottles and marine plastic. What's crazy about Rothy's is they have this, I don't even know how, but this... They're so comfortable. They have zero break-in period thanks to their seamlessly knit-to-shape design. I like I love a, a loafer, but I have a lot of trouble with my heel. I always get really bad blisters, as I've told you. That's why I need padded socks or like uh, to buy heel cushions. But Rothy's have no they have no um, break-in period, and I don't. It's kind of crazy and hard to believe unless you try it. Come for the sustainability and the shoe made out of recycled plastic. Stay for the comfort. Their best-selling shoe, The Point in Black, has over 3,000 near-perfect reviews. And their newest styles include brand-new bags, masks, which is great, and the return of their best-selling merino wool shoes made from a blend of their signature sustainable thread and their softest material ever. They have so many colors, prints, patterns, and styles. A lot of them rotate seasonally, so it's good to check back. They have pointed loafers, sneakers, Chelsea boots, kids' shoes, so many different options. Health Magazine called it the most comfortable shoe on earth. That is not hyperbolic nonsense. That is just the truth. Uh, Vogue said they're a personal obsession. They have, they have free shipping and free returns, and um, they are fully machine washable. So every time they need a refresh, you can just toss them in the washing machine. Rothy's, it's just a great company. They've been a great partner from start to finish. They prioritize sustainability in manufacturing every step of the way. And I hope you will check out all the amazing shoes and bags available right now at rothys.com slash be there in five. That's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash be there in five. Where style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com slash be there in five today. Okay, so how do we go from zero to 60? How do we go from, you know, innocuous executive success program, Nexium, personal improvement, intensive courses trying to help you do better business and communication all the way to harem of sex slaves that are branded with this like horrible leader's name who somehow manipulated 16,000 people. Uh, who, who who got the Dalai Lama, who paid off the Dalai Lama allegedly to come talk to him to like have some sort of weird third party validation or endorsement who did like, I mean, there's, if you watch the show, you understand the endless uh, weirdness and crimes committed by this man, by his business partner, by Allison Mack, by all the people involved. I'm like less interested in all that and more interested in this concept of NLP, because as I said, I noticed it's the through line from what Tony Robbins openly talks about using to what like churches get in trouble for allegedly being a part of in combination with like hypnosis techniques um, that uh, Keith Raniere, uh, is it Raniere or Raniere? I keep forgetting uh, that he, I'll just call him Keith, I'll call him Vanguard, just kidding, would never gross. Uh, It's like that should have been, I I, would have been like, it's a Vanguard for me. It's the knee pads for me. It's the no wine for me. It's the graduation regalia sashes for me. I mean, they they were kind of cheap looking, if I'm honest. I You'd hope if you're paying thousands of dollars and clocking 16-hour days and playing a garbage underhand serve gym volleyball, they'd at least get you something silk and not sateen. That's the real crime. <laughs> okay, so 
neurolinguistic programming is an, it's according to uh, what I was reading. I believe I was reading about this on the per uh, the Frank report. Um, it's an obscure pseudoscientific approach to communication and personal development. It's a tactic of control that is used by the Church of Scientology um, and combined with a lot of practices from Scientology, uh, paired with the NLP expertise of Nancy Salzman, Nexium was born and deployed these like programming tactics that can on the surface be used to help people achieve specific goals in life, but deep uh, underneath the surface can be used to... Um, kind of rework the neurological processes of our, our bodies and mind that are innately connected to language and the behavior patterns that we learn through experience and uh, mirrored essentially to reprogram the the way you see your own experiences, your sensory reactions to them, and kind of completely brainwash you, honestly. And I know that sounds really confusing, but the the, the premise of NLP is that um, – there's three main ideas. They they think that experience the, the world is experienced subjectively. This subjectivity is experiential and sensory based, and that this behavior can be described, understood, and modified through um, sense based subjective representations. And I know that may, doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense, but I'll explain the essence of it. It's it's it sounds complicated, but when you break it down, you can kind of understand it. But like. It's, it operates under this concept that everything that happens to a person is subjective. And so like you can relearn uh, your experiences. You can adjust the sensory stimuli you, you have to experience, the way you respond to experiences. You can essentially manipulate the truth, your truth, and uh, kind of basically get brainwashed to reprogram and condition your brain to have this level of subjectivity that completely eradicates uh, your concept of, of reality. And it's done through this technique I'll explain called like mirroring and modeling. My understanding is this can be used for good and evil. I'm no psychotherapist, but neither is Nancy Salzman or Keith Raniere. Uh, they shouldn't have been doing this. But allegedly this can be used in a therapeutic sense. So I don't want to speak out of turn if it is. But in a cultish, creepy sense or in a religious manipulative sense, these tactics are used to mirror people's behaviors, to model after them, to figure out how to most effectively communicate to them, to alter their experience and the way they're perceiving things and essentially brainwash and like mind control them. So like, for example, in the context of what I was reading about Adventists, they would go to people's houses who had dropped out of church and try to figure out methodologies to encourage them to return, to keep people like coming back and in the group and to, you know, recruit new members. And they would kind of position it as like listening skills to improve interpersonal communication during visits. But then they would use like uh, scripture, like First Corinthians chapter nine, verse 19 through 23. Paul tells us we need to adapt our communication to be like the person we're attempting to reach. So they would use neuro-linguistic programming um, to go to church members' house to watch like how they lived, how they communicated. And like during these home visits, a person would observe the, you know, non-member or wannabe member, a person they're trying to get back and keep within their control, observe their neuro-linguistic programming or thinking style. And the church member was instructed to like know what, you know, figure out what choice of words they could model to communicate more effectively to that person and essentially like get them back. And this is like kind of a mild usage of it, but an example of how uh, people are were using these like psychotherapeutic practices incorrectly to kind of manipulate people into behaving in a way that favored their organization. So that's one way people could like kind of rose colored explain why they would do something like this. Similarly, Tony Robbins explains why he uses NLP and he actually attributes it to being one of his secrets to success and very openly talks about it 
as an like an effective method of um, communicating with people that he actually preaches and teaches and always has for years. So like it's not this like underground secret mind control thing. Some people very openly herald the importance of this, but it really can be used for good or evil. The way it's kind of positioned that I saw it that I thought made sense is like a knife is very different, a very different tool in two different people's hands and with two very different forms of intent. One person's a surgeon who uses that knife to cut into somebody and remove a malignant tumor. One person is a murderer who uses that knife to stab and kill somebody. Same tool, different outcomes. So it's interesting in the context of like a Tony Robbins who says in an article on his uh, website that one of the most important mentors in his life is a man named John Grinder, the founder of NLP, a communication approach that focuses on adapting a person's neurological processes and behavioral patterns to achieve specific goals called modeling, like I said earlier. So Tony Robbins openly talks about this in terms of helping people achieve goals. But when you look at how this can be used in a manipulative format in the context of Keith and Nexium, well, Keith's actual criminal beginnings are very centric to NLP because he got obsessed with it in the 80s. And in 1984, Keith was 24. He started dating a 15-year-old and convinced this 15-year-old that she was a Buddhist goddess that was like meant to be with him. I don't know what happened in the meantime, but eventually she dropped out of high school. She joined his then pyramid scheme that was later busted called Consumer Consumer's Byline, and then she killed herself. Uh, he used it on this young woman, allegedly. He used it to build his pyramid scheme before it got busted, and he used it alongside Nancy Salzman, who was an actual NLP practitioner and hypno like a hypnosis expert that he met and ultimately partnered with to found to uh, be the founders of executive success programs that was ultimately rebranded to the company slash cult Nexium. He tried to patent this uh, foundational concept of Nexium slash executive success programs or ESP called rational inquiry, even though neither Keith nor Nancy were psychotherapists who are the ones that should be using these techniques, you know, to heal and to therapize allegedly when even though I don't understand really how they work, but instead they were using it to manipulate people. And from what I understand, um, they, they were would basically mirror and interrogate people in order to match the beliefs of their members um, with the behavior, like, you know, Keith and Nancy's goals that they wanted to achieve. So they would work to change the meanings of their subjects' experiences by redefining very basic concepts and words like good and bad and reestablish the definitions of these words, brainwash people, and then could manipulate their behavior to mimic the what Keith essentially wanted them to do. And the way this works, I'll tell you through the words of Frank uh, from the Frank Report, which if you watch the show, you know who that is. He was one of the first whistleblowers. <clears throat> Casey interviewed him on her podcast. He explains this on the frankreport.com. He says NLP is taught in a pyramid structure with more advanced techniques reserved for multi-thousand dollar seminars. To oversimplify, it works like this. First, the practitioner, um, uh, or NLP, or as people refer to themselves, they pay very close attention to the person they're working with. By watching subtle cues like eye movement, skin flush, pupil dilation, and nervous tics, a, skin, a skilled NLP person can quickly determine A, what side of the brain a person is predominantly using, B, what sense, sight, smell, etc. is most predominant in their brain. C, how their brain stores and utilizes information gleaned from eye movements. D, when they're lying or making information up. <clears throat> After this initial round of information gathering, the NLPer begins to slowly and subtly mimic the client, taking on not only their body language, but also their speech, mannerisms, and will begin speaking with language patterns designed to target the client's primary sense. 
An NLP person carefully fakes the social cues that cause a person to drop their guard and enter a state of openness and suggestibility. A person predominantly focused on sight will be spoken to in language using visual metaphors. Like, do you see what I'm saying? Look at it this way. While a person in which for which hearing is the dominant sense will be spoken to in an auditory language, like hear me out, I'm listening to you closely. By mirroring body language and linguistic patterns, the NLP is attempting to achieve one very specific response, rapport. Rapport is the mental and physiological state that a human enters when they let their social guard down, and it is generally achieved when a person concludes that the person they're talking to is just like them. An NLP person carefully fakes the social clues, cues that cause a person to drop their guard and enter a state of openness and suggestibility. Once rapport is achieved, the NLPer then begins to subtly lead the interaction. Having mirrored the other person, they can now make subtle changes to actually influence the other person's behavior. With subtle language patterns, leading questions, and a whole slew of other techniques, a skilled NLPer can steer the other person wherever they like, as long as the other person isn't aware of what's happening and thinks everything is arising organically or has given consent. It's actually... Fairly hard to use NLP to get people to act out of character, but it can be used for engineering responses within a person's normal range of behavior, like donating to a cause, making a decision they were putting off, or going home with you for the night, if they might have considered doing it anyway. From this point, the NLPer will seek to do two things, elicit and anchor. Eliciting happens when an NLPer uses leading and language to engineer an emotional state, for instance, hunger. Once a state has been elicited, the NLPer can anchor it with a physical cue. For instance, touching your shoulder. If done right, the NLPer can call up the hungry state anytime they touch your shoulder in the same way. Plain and simple, it's conditioning. This case involves coercion to get people to do things they would not do if they didn't feel pressured. Since Nexium upper leadership from Keith Raniere and both Nancy and their, her daughter Lauren Salzman and down through the executive board are well trained in the art of hypnosis and NLP, which they call their advanced technology, they have the ability to coerce others into doing things they would not do under normal circumstances. So they put students on limited sleep, limit their food intake, they make them fear punishment for not walking the company line in their mission, and they have somebody ripe for mind control. This is how they get their students to sleep with Mr. Ranieri, bring cash across the border knowing it's an illegal act, to not pay their taxes, to punish other students, to ask students to go deep in debt to take their courses they can't afford, ask them to give up their careers to move to Albany to work dead-end jobs for little pay, to set up bank accounts in their names that Nexium uses for their own purposes, such as paying commissions, just to name a few things that the students did for Prefect Nancy Salzman, that's what they called her, and Vanguard Keith Ranieri. I know that was a lot, that probably doesn't make a ton of sense, but I thought it was, I think that that's an interesting piece of this that I find fascinating that because i think a lot of us at the deeper we got into the show we were like why would how, how on earth would you ever be okay with doing these things why would anybody ever be a sex slave why would anybody ever get branded why would anybody ever follow this guy and i think it's really scary to hear about such su like something so subtle and almost not even understandable to someone like me that could be being done to me without me even knowing it and one of the things I thought was so interesting was one of the people described meeting Keith for the first time. And she goes into his office this is when he was at the uh, he had the first pyramid scheme before it got shut down. I think this was Tony, one of his first girlfriends. She said that she came in. She went in there for what she thought was like 15 minutes. And then she comes out and the person somebody was like, you were in there for a long time. She's like, oh, I was only in there for like a little a little while. And they're like, you were in there for two and a half hours. And she had no idea. And she was like put into a state of like lights hypnosis and didn't even realize it. But in these tactics, not only are you letting people's guard down and, you know, figuring out how to model their behavior to ultimately manipulate them, you're also getting to know their weaknesses, that MLMs, that extremist face and that pyramid schemes and, uh, you know, cults in this scenario can use to essentially figure out 
how to get you hooked, can figure out what they need to sell to you or promise to you to get them to to stick around. And MLMs are notorious for manipulating these weaknesses um, to get you on board, to sell you false hope. You know, it's it's no different. It's similar to people uh, like in ML- weight loss MLMs actively seeking out like new mothers and say horrible things like, uh, like, I bet you're looking to get your body back. You know what I mean? Or like they will literally find people whose kids have been like diagnosed with autism to sell them essential oils. Like they prey on the vulnerable, on the people that need for more, want for more, tell them they deserve more in their life. They need more spending money. They could be an entrepreneur. They could be independent and or they find people through, you know, finding their weaknesses, getting them to let their guard down and exploiting those weaknesses for how they and only they or their organization or religion or cult can solve their problems. So it's kind of this combination of um, efforts. And beyond that, this promise of self-improvement, um, it it was paired with this concept of collateral. So not only were people being manipulated, but then they were also being essentially blackmailed the higher up they went and the deeper they got into the organization. And that's when the darker stuff started to happen. I don't know if I'm explaining this well, because the, here's the problem. Just like a lot of other MLMs and, and, and um, you know, self-help uh, modules that are the, the it's hard objectively to understand them on the outside and to be more diagnostic about the process and to even understand every how everyone's role fits in because we just, like Scientology does this too like the, the members are subjected to different dogma it's contingent upon their level and like depth of involvement so it's hard to like understand the truth when the truth is like largely secret and is what what is withheld to lure people to get deeper and deeper into the program and at different levels because we know there's all these different organizations that, that Nexium is the parent, right? And like then exec, executive success programs, I gather is the point of entry for most people, which is their like self-help modules that Keith has all these patents for that is cobbled together new age bullshit therapy practices he shouldn't have been employing. Um, that is uh, neuro-linguistic programming. That is uh, something called... Um, what's it called Uh, exploration of meaning so that's an example of of a tactic they would use it's kind of a point of entry with these modules that i'm going to get into where a member and a high-ranking nexium teacher sit in chairs they face each other the group of other members watch the member has to explain an area of their life they're having trouble in like you know or anxious about and the teacher asks questions to see if their anxiety is rooted in a specific memory pattern in the past. This isn't unusual for a therapist, a licensed therapist to do. It's very unusual to do it in front of a group of people. So it's taking things that already exist and doing them in a weird way that uh, rush vulnerability, that uh, kind of embarrass and humiliate the individual, that hold them accountable to their secrets being exposed to a group that could be held against them, all while it's doing a series of uh, behind-the-scenes mind control tactics that essentially indoctrinate a person without their consent. And it's a little confusing because this the this is specific to ES executive success programs, which is the MLM, that where you can make money in the organization. There's a ton of offshoots like Jeunesse, the Women's Empowerment Organization, allegedly that was a deeply misogynistic organization meant to tear women down, led by Allison Mack that was a feeder, I believe, for Keith's sex slave harem that was uh, called DOS, a dominus obsequious sororium where... Uh, Keith said it was like Latin for master over slave women. Um, and they were forced to obey their master. So each woman had six slaves. It constituted a pod. And then women could become masters by recruiting six of their own slaves. And the way they were able to recruit slaves by providing their master with collateral. So like Lauren, uh, the BFF and maid of honor of Sarah, who the vow is based off of, Lauren Salzman's the daughter of Nancy Salzman. 
they would so like Sarah, for example, had to provide Lauren with collateral collaterals in the form of nude images, financial information. Um, it's blackmail, family secrets, whatever. So there was collateral provided to ensure the secrecy once they were invited into the secret sorority called DOS. Beyond the collateral and the the nude images and like craziness of the pressure and the beck and call you needed to be accessible as somebody's alleged slave, you literally had to call each other slave and master. Uh, they would hear, adhere to a starvation diet. Their hair would fall out. They wouldn't have periods. They'd only sleep a few hours a night. They would received a, all received a pelvic brand, like they were branded. Their burned, their flesh was burned in the shape of a Latin symbol. That that's what Keith said, but it's actually his initials paired with Allison Max initials. They also had to perform sex acts on Rainier. I mean, the whole thing is disgusting and gross and vile and violating. And it's hard to even understand. But DOS was like a secret organization at the highest level that a lot of people claim to not be aware of. So when people focus on that, I'm kind of like. Yes, but that's crazy. And I, I'm i interested to learn more in India's documentary about DOS. But to me, I wanted to, I, I always want to take it back to ESP. Because when you think about um, those modules and that as an MLM, and think about it as, uh, as uh, the, the kind of an offshoot of like the human potential movement, right? Like it's something that would be appealing to a lot of people. And... Like I said, uh, the he kind of cobbled different uh, existing concepts together. And I think this is why he seems he's like nearly un, not un, he's not even understandable to listen to. I, I think it's he's actually quite unskilled in kind of uh, threading these existing concepts together. But he rebrands them as his own one being rational inquiry. Um, this is the behavioral therapy at the center of, of Nexium's public facing work. So that's kind of what I'm trying to distinguish between. It's like there's a lot of crazy shit that goes down that's private and that was uncovered and that there's a lot of focus on. But the public facing piece I find really interesting. So the behavioral alleged proprietary behavioral therapy that everyone like that the Nexium's public facing work hinged upon. Um, I wanted to know like what it was, like what were the modules? Like I didn't get what it was besides what I said earlier where um you, you're essentially doing the uh, one-on-one uh, therapy like in front of people. But beyond that, when, okay, so rational inquiry, it's it's a plurality of questions, methods and observations leading to answers, meanings, ethics, personal essence, purpose, and greater awareness. It's the buzzwords are insane. The questions and observations in the method are provided to the individual in a matrix or a plurality of modules, including practices and inquiries. The matrix or modules, including practices and inquiries, are used to assist the individual in determining a minimally assumptive matrix of consistent human internal existence and determining a minimally assumptive matrix of consistent reality. If through comparison of the minimally assumptive matrices, a difference is detected, a disintegration is said to occur. The disintegration is removed by allowing the individual to integrate through a more complex awareness of a limiting belief. That's a bunch of psychobabble for... I kind of think addressing um, trauma, uh, seeing if your assumptions are consistent with reality, and just separating what actually happened from what you assume happened, erasing your memory and 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 basically pro- reprogramming yourself to relearn your experiences, and then you disintegrate from the limiting belief associated with that. It's it's brainwashing, like it's. So it's kind of that's the models were all like based on this. So what I just read is is literally it's from patents.google.com. I'm reading through Keith's patents. 
I want you to understand the language he used because patents were a big thing that the, he uh, it's, it's, he leads in his bio with having like 147 patents pending for all sorts of weird shit from like helping you sleep to like certain types of casts on human like to, to uh, it, it's so weird I'll, if I have time I'll get it it's not that important but he, he, presenting himself as some like genius uh, owner of intellectual property that you know is adding this distinct value and innovation to this company like. This is all part of his like uh, mystique that I think contributed to this like worship of him or this trust in him, even though he was literally like a problematic, uh, you know, failed uh, pyramid schemer, statutory rapist. People seem to ignore all of that because he was so damn good at manipulating them and being like approachable. If you watch the scene where Allison Mack first meets Keith, it is deeply, deeply disturbing. And you just you see her like inner child and she just like really is she feels heard. She feels paid attention to. She feels like she has potential. You can like see her start to melt and just be so convinced that this person, these people, this community, this volleyball gym is like the key to her happiness and what could possibly be a very lonely existence as like somewhat of a child star, right? Like I think she's a criminal, but I also don't think she probably entered under the premise of becoming one. Uh, she was deeply loyal and manipulated and brainwashed by this man. And this is hard, too, to figure out who's a victim and who's a criminal and, and where there's a little bit of in between. But back to this rational inquiry pattern. It's so crazy. So it talks about how rational inquiry changes the way individuals experience the world. When integration occurs, a piece of information falls into place and the meaning of stimulus changes. Rational inquiry creates integration so people become more consistent in their beliefs and behavior. Integration provides a profound shift in how people do things. Whatever made things seem difficult or impossible for them in the past made them ineffective or unmotivated, literally just falls away and disappears. Traditional therapy modifies and changes the emotional response that the student has to a stimulus. The rational inquiry method modifies the meaning of the stimulus itself to the student before an emotional response occurs. <clears throat> the present invention includes a matrix of or plur plurality of modules, including practices and inquiries to, that change an individual's recognition and beliefs through rational inquiry. So it's literally not responding to the way something made you feel or the way you interpreted something. It's saying before you even feel or respond anything, before you heal from your sensory response, before you heal from the trauma, you can't call it trauma. What actually happened? And let's look at that and let's take its power away and let's, let's, let's relearn it and reprogram ourselves to believe that that thing's not actually traumatic. My interpretation of that is that it's trauma. It's abuse. If you watch the last episode where he explains that like, Abuse isn't really real. It's just the power you give it, the way you talk about it, the way he talks about men and women and princes and uh, princesses and princes and the deeply, deeply misogynistic beliefs he has about men toward women and what men's what women should expect of men and how women need to be more obedient and, and how we're whiny and awful. Like the, if you, the episode nine was crazy and I don't even I don't even know how to recap because I just watched it and it like blew my mind and I don't it just it really revealed he is some sort of clear, deep, intense trauma um, in his life and a deep hatred toward women that the joke is he thought he could disintegrate from, but he probably, uh, is coming from a place of his own inner child, not really understanding the ins and outs of psychotherapy and thus inflicting trauma and abuse on others because he himself was abused in some way, though I don't feel bad for him at all because this is just another level of detonating people's lives that is like, you can't have patience for, right? It's not negligence, it's not an accident. It's not something you feel bad for them as a victim. It's This is a meticulously crafted criminal operation and cycle of abuse that was built to make it impossible to get out of. What were these modules themselves? The modules, okay, I'm reading through patents here. I This is probably, you guys hate me. I'm like in the weeds, I'm sorry. I know there's this is not the most exciting part, but I, I'm obsessed. Okay, these modules 
Practices and inquiries include but are not limited to teaching a student rules and rituals, teaching the student scripting for effective sales, teaching the student communication and being at cause for taking responsibility for choice at all times, teaching the student honesty and disclosure for building integrity, teaching the student how to generate rapport and excited state to increase the effectiveness of communication, teaching the student persistence to build long-term commitment, teaching the student how to generate peak intensity and power state to allow the student to be more effective in activities with his, her full bandwidth of emotions, teaching them about work and value for providing the student a way to produce more satisfying results, teaching the student how to raise self-esteem to allow the student to be aware of many choices in a given context, teaching the student how to recognize good and bad so that the student can choose the good, teaching the student how to understand, identify, and protect themselves against parasite strategies that keep people dependent on others and lower self-esteem, teaching them about ethics, justice, crime, and punishment, and how ethics are upheld in a just system, teaching them how to recognize and avoid shifters who destroy value, teaching the student how to pay tribute to others who have contributed to them, teaching the student about the basis of money, uh, blah, blah, blah. So the reason I read this is because it, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier in which I found that 2003 article from that UCLA associate professor of psychotherapy that explains that, okay, this is, these are the modules at face value, right? So what about these modules get you um, paying a company thousands of dollars you know, you've no sleep, you're playing volleyball all night, you're loyal to this guy and make you start to climb through this organization that by just reading those definitions of rational inquiry just seem like a bunch of like uh, pseudoscientific modifications of psychotherapy trying to be patented by somebody with zero credentials that again, at face value, I'd be like, okay, this is whatever. But, but here's where the mind control NLP piece comes in. It's not necessarily about the content. Yeah, the content is cobbled together, new agey crap paired with traditional therapy. Um, but the neurolinguistic programming is used to uh, hook people and to make them let their guard down, to share vulnerabilities, to allow them to prey on their weaknesses, to mirror their behaviors so they feel safe, they feel comfortable. So there's this, there's this like tr- several pronged approach of like use NLP to make them feel comfortable, bring them in, learn their weaknesses, just kind of I almost put them in a state of this like hypnosis. Uh, at their most vulnerable. You put them in front of people and make them essentially therapize and reveal their weaknesses in front of others. You teach them these modules that are these like uh, therapeutic practices that allegedly can uh, help them get past all of their shortcomings, all of their limitations. Like, great, cool. That This is the pyramid scheme. This is why people pay money. This is why people like Sarah Rose to the organization. And this is why ESP was a money-making operation. But what's happening behind the scenes, the piece of of the um, mind control that is happening without people's consent is the subtleties in those words I just read. Are you guys with me? I'm so sorry. I should have not told my dumb story about that <laughs> my ghost story. Um, okay. So ESP training, uh, like I said, is offered through workshops called intensives. And I'm very interested in like what actually goes on at these things and how you, how you would get yourself even involved. But just so you understand pricing, the 16-day, at least in the early 2000s, the 16-day intensive was like 8 a.m. to 10 p.m., really long days, $7,500. The five-day, uh, or it's 6000 if you pay two weeks in advance. The five-day intensive is $2,700. Uh, the three-day intensive is $1,200. You're basically on a high at these first classes, learning these like disintegrations and um, the, like the mechanics of, of how you can overcome your limiting beliefs to r- reach your potential. What the hell is that? What's the metric for that? What's the science for that? I don't fucking know. It's so It's so ridiculous. But he, they go through um, these uh, stages of human evolution where Keith explains that humans are born parasitic. They are n- unable to take care of themselves. They depend on others for survival. 
And then adult parasite strategies are to keep people dependent on others and lower their self-esteem. And examples of parasitic behavior are presented like complaining about pain and suffering, um, saying, I'm hungry. So he's teaching that any sort of negative response to a very legitimate emotion is parasitic dependent pathetic behavior indicative of like infants. Uh, so these are examples of building blocks of like undoing things that make that that would hold somebody like Keith or this organization accountable for how they're making you feel. Th these are the beginnings of gaslighting types of thoughts that are making you feel crazy for having normal natural reactions. And it's having you undo the things you learn by saying you're parasitic dependent and your ideals of good and bad are completely skewed. So a sampling from the workshop that spells out a new version of good and bad, it says when we were little children, we learned bad when somebody yelled no or that's bad or stopped. We learned good when we were rewarded in some way. This sort of learning is inconsistent and limiting because in order to have a full understanding of each concept, we would have had to examine every example of good and every example of bad. This practice session affords you the opportunity to reevaluate your definitions of these vital concepts to form a solid foundation for the future. So they completely redefine good and bad in your entire moral compass. So, like, and I'm reading from, like, modules that I found on the internet. So, you learn things like that there are no ultimate victims, the, that the information gleaned from the seminars has to be confidential. Um, there's a pledge to control as much of the money in the world as possible within each student's success plan. It's essential for the survival of the world, for as much money of the world to be controlled by ethical people. This is so... Uh, <laughs> okay, this is... So, literally, he's setting up a system where this is this type of framework is prevalent so much self-help so much uh, so many aspects of the human potential movement like this organization needs to create this group of ethical leaders that abide by these these tenants that they they can provide the tools they can provide the trainings they are the only people that can help you reach their maximum like reach your maximum potential uh meanwhile you can't tell anyone about it meanwhile it's very very money oriented meanwhile um you are completely being reprogrammed and reconditioned to relearn your experiences that there are no ultimate victims that anything you're doing that's complaining um or reacting and, and having any sort of stimulus response to a situation is is parasitic is complaining is is insufferable behavior and you should be able to control exactly the way you respond and what happens to you is not a product of what actually happens it's a product of your perception to what happens this is rachel hollis 101 right so even if you're enchanted by the principles or disenchanted, even if you're like not totally sure. India Oxenberg, like I said, in her star special was like, I wasn't even that into it, but I went back because people were nice. I felt valued. I felt good. Blah, blah, blah. We know what's the contents of the modules that I just went through. And I read through that patent and I read through one of the manual pieces. So it's almost better for me to like break it down. Like, okay, you're at a session. In what way are they slowly but surely without your knowledge or consent uh, making you more loyal, committed, and uh, to this organization while also severing your ties slowly and unknowingly with the outside world. And this is the part that intrigues me because the this is what people this is what this is what is not being said. This is this this is the part that people do not know is happening to them. These are the tactics MLMs, cults, like some religions, whatever extremist groups, the Venn diagram we talked about. This is their their modules might have content that has a point at times. It might help people in ways, but the way it is designed is the is the thing that actually subliminally ultimately gets them to stay. It's not the content itself. It's the style and the approach and the facilitation of the content. So what they're using to mind control people in the background 
are kind of simple things for okay so one thing is long hours a group using mind control attempts to maximize the influence of group leaders on its participants at the expense of any ongoing influence of friends or relatives so they would have 16 10 hour days from 8 a.m to 10 p.m they would in doing that limit the ability to get feedback from friends and family Participants are told not to promise not to tell non-participants what they learn in the intensive, as well as its methods, because it's like intellectual property, right? So that way, they're not having to respond to questions like, what did you learn today or what's going on there? It's already designed to distance the participant from ongoing relationships. Or as I learned in the Stars documentary, there's only one episode out. Unfortunately, it's a four-part series where uh, India Oxenberg tells her side of the story. Um she describes how going with her mom, they immediately separate her from her mom. Like, even if your friend or family is in the group, they don't, like, really want the accountability or ability to communicate and to, to share what is going on on the inside. So the long hours and secrecy immediately prevent and distance you from talking about what's going on in the seminar and getting objective advice from third parties. So... And the way they further shut down that communication is they rebrand very common vocabulary words, like I said earlier, with a new language. There's this whole separate vernacular. And all like, normal English words are redefined to fit the peculiar me- meanings of group leaders. And then the way you communicate becomes near incomprehensible to outsiders. And this is interesting to me because if you go on YouTube and you type like, there's this YouTube channel called Keith, R- Keith Ranieri Conversations. And there's this one he's having with Allison Mack about vulnerability that was featured in the finale. And Allison is in tears, like crying, listening to Keith talk about vulnerability. And he's literally saying nothing. He's talking in circles. He's using synonyms. He's saying nothing insightful whatsoever. But she's like deeply moved by it. He was, he's basically like, how can you be authentic in the face of inauthenticity? And she's like, I'm going to cry. And it's like, what? You're not, it's gibberish. But it's like these things take on new meanings to people that are like inside of this idiosyncratic vocabulary. Um, so the other thing they do as part of this ESP intensive that people don't realize they're doing is the preemptive neutralization of criticism of the group by participants and their family and friends early on. So remember when I was reading those terms from the rational inquiry patent earlier, like shifter. So they establish in these ESP intensives, this, this concept of shifter strategies, which are undesirable behaviors, similar to what Scientology teaches, teaches, where if somebody outside the group criticizes things that the group does, they're suppressive. Like, they literally use the same word, like suppressive person in Scientology. Since group outsiders will undoubtedly perceive parts of what the group is doing as manipulative or cult-like, they almost they, they use those exact words outright, being like, people are going to say it's this, that, or the other, but like, don't listen to them. Like, they're a shifter, they're suppressive. Um... If people criticize a group using these words, like we know they're going to say that, but they kind of impart a sense of superiority among um, the participants. And this is super similar to me to what a lot of um, religions do in basically saying that any naysayer, like feel bad for them, pray for them. They're going to hell. Anyone who says you're doing something wrong or this isn't true or you are a part of something that is this, that or the other, like they are just a contrarian dissenting opinion whose soul is going to ultimately perish. There's no point in engaging. There's no point in questioning. Or like I said earlier, if you want a temple recommend in the Mormon church, you can't engage with anti-Mormon teachings. Like the people that would reach out to me, they just like inundate me with all this scripture and all this nonsense and like genuinely making you believe that the any sort of questioning or doubt is, is the handiwork of the devil. Um... And also being like, well, we're the ones that go to heaven. We're the ones who are going to be saved. When you have that superiority, it doesn't make you engage in the way you might. The other thing they would do in these intensives is um, 
the concept of of uh, regalia and rituals and these sashes. And Keith took this from like his background in judo, which apparently he like barely even knew how to do. And uh, he would go by the title of Vanguard, and they people were routinely expected to thank him. And uh, his, a member's group rank would be visible by their scarf color and the number of stripes on the scarf. And there's like a secret handshake and the higher rank person's hands go on top and blah, blah, blah. And the desire is like to advance to a coach to be able to wear this regalia. And um, there is like this visual element of, of, of rank and superiority that allegedly like, I don't know, me- messes with people's minds. And then these things become desirable. And I laugh because at first I was like, yikes, regalia, sashes, handshakes. But again, sorority had all those things <laughs> and uh, required the, the, they also would require daily contact with their superiors in kind of, uh, according to this article, like position it as personal growth. It says, since paramilitary regalia makes it clear who is superior to who in rank, ongoing participants are required to make a daily brief phone call to check in with a coach. Promotion to a higher level scarf cannot occur without approval from one's coach, who becomes part of the group's eyes and ears to see if participants are, for example, becoming suppressive. Moreover, promotion in this group is iced over with the title of showing persistence to a long-term commitment. Since daily checking in like this is an unnatural thing to do for most grown-ups, any discomfort will most certainly be met with the confrontation that they need to be able to keep a long-term commitment. And this is definitely evidenced in Keith's like weird late night talks with people, walks with people, and volleyball games that started at 10 p.m. and went until 5 a.m., which is so strange. So that's just kind of like, allegedly, that's the subtle mind control piece. The way, like, so this is so freaking complicated. So there's like the actual like behavioral techniques used on people. There's the framework of the program that, uh, sets up a hospitable environment to get somebody into it before they could ever be talked out of it because you're giving them no opportunity to be talked out of it. There's the MLM piece that's, you know, a tempting gateway and under the guise of self-improvement that are the modules themselves that uh, not only might make you feel higher accomplished at first, but beyond that, rope you into further training, further seminars, encourage you to get friends and family to do the same. You're being integrated into a subculture. And the thing is, the distinguishing factor, I think, for problematic self-help in, you know, like the cliches of the problems of the human potential movement versus actual, you know, productive professional development, which exists, by the way, um, is are these tools, is, are the, the, the tools, the vocabulary, the output of this, is this going to help you thrive in your life as it is, in your reality as it is? Or are you being integrated into a subculture where the the values, the virtues, the vocabulary, the um, progress you make actually has no bearing on your real life and just gets you further into the subculture. It's not making you a better executive. It's making you a better espion, according to this UCLA MD. And I thought that was an interesting point. The, the further you go into it, it has nothing to do with the real world. It has nothing to do with achieving anything in the real world. All of this... Um, all of the teachings and this entire framework and the movement through the organization is specifically designed not to help you in your regular life, but to make to separate you from your regular life and to only make you successful within the confines of this organization, its vocabulary, its structure, its leadership. And it's ultimately just making you crush it and making another person's scam profitable. So it's success only within a very specific function. 
and denominator that really is, is nothing to do with you and just serves the organization and isn't personal development at all. You're in a pyramid of people that is just ultimately serving the person at the top. What people allegedly didn't realize at the top is that there was Keith and his harem of women and the protector society and Lord knows what other sketchy things went on up there. So then it gets to the point of where you're like, okay, so the way you get people in, the way you get them vulnerable is you practice things like NLP. You have them therapized in front of people. You have these modules that actually don't seem that unreasonable on the surface. So if you are really taking a step back, you realize they're just rebranding a bunch of therapeutic practices he has no right to. And beyond that, grooming people to not accept pushback, to not accept outside contact, to justify uh, any moral wrongdoing, to make sure you know that you are not a victim, to completely uh, reprogram your moral compass, and to ultimately relearn in all your experiences and traumas so that you have a completely skewed and confused uh, viewpoint of abuse. It, it, it gets to a point where you, I think you start out with a, a great deal of, of like false clarity and then get to a point where you're jumbled and your self-esteem is broken down. And then you become dependent on this program to almost get you back to that place that you can't get to. Because as you were unlearning, you maybe experienced some clarity. And the best, I, I was reading an article that was trying to, because it's, it's hard for me to really explain, like, is there anything like that great that's happening? And I think it's just these like typical therapy techniques um, in a really unique context, like I talked about with EM, uh, ex exploration of meaning. And this is like the NLP piece where, in the vow showed footage of where they're looking at the eye movement desensitization, desensitization and reprocessing. I think this was part of the neurolinguistic um, programming where like, if, okay, if the person's in front of you recounting a traumatic event, you're watching their behavior, their eyes, the, you know, if they're the, the way they interact with you, um, they have you tell them a harmful or negative belief. Um, and then just like a therapist, they help you pinpoint that specific uh, memory or trauma that led to the, that reinforced that you think that you are, um, you know, unlovable, that you are ugly, that you are unsuccessful, whatever, like whatever negative emotion they have, you recount the trauma um, and they watch your behavior to see like how you were previously taught to figure out how to like basically get you to unlearn it. And when this isn't done one-on-one, -on -one, and you're sharing your vulnerable and traumatic past in front of a crowd in these early sessions amidst learning all these modules. Um, the you know the audience is clapping, they're cheering, they're, they're excited. They're like, you're getting so much positive feedback on something that makes you feel like broken, on, on something that makes you feel damaged, on something that has, has really held you back in life. And there and I've there's an insider article that called the fetis, 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 fetishization of vulnerability. And uh typically therapy is done in private for a reason. It's a safe space. But when you remove the safe space and you claim it's accountability, um, it's really kind of making people fetishize it in a way where the more you reveal and the more weaknesses you share and the more you, more you open up, the more you'll be praised, right? You're reinforced by this external large group praise for your deepest, darkest secrets in a way you thought you would normally be shamed or humiliated for them. So starting with like small manipulative things like that. And meanwhile, the pro proctor is like watching your eye movement and, and figuring out your behaviors and learning about you in a way to like ultimately get you to stick around. And that, I guess, as you go further, will help you like basically deprogram. Um, and like, how does this pertain to like having sex with Keith? So in the fourth episode, again, I'm reading, this is an analysis from an insider article. There's an anonymous member named Jane 
And she discussed her dissociative response when she had sex with Keith. So dissociation or feeling outside of your body during a traumatic event is a natural way humans protect themselves from physically, mentally, or emotionally scarring events. Um, And what's happening is that when you take these modules and you get further in this program and you're taught that natural responses are your fault, like you, trauma is subjective. You should not be responding to it. And I guess there's a level of dissociation that occurs amidst this trauma to protect yourself. And then when you're pressured into sex, you're coerced to do so under the premise that you're, this is how you get closer to your goals. Um, This is a mental block you have to work through. And the way you work through those blocks is through what? More EMs. What are those one-on-one sessions where they break you down, make you reveal more and more. You're only positively reinforced for the deeper you go and the more vulnerable you are. And EM, the exploration of meanings, are where they uh, continuously use this like NLP of watching your like eye movement and behavior. So I, I don't know if that helps tie it at all, but like... It's, it's, she said, Jane said, it's a way of dismantling people's self-protection. It's wildly manipulative. It's a psychology-backed method, but it's weaponized. Uh, it's weaponized against the women to gaslight them into ignoring their intuitions and to bend to his every request. The fact that his method has some elements of that valid theory makes it dangerous because it's something that feels reasonable on the surface. Does that make sense? So, like, if you're completely deprogrammed to believe to completely skew your moral code, to bend to the cult identity in their moral code, and to think these people have your best interests in mind. You're constantly revealing and being more and more vulnerable. So they're learning all of your doubts and fears and things that could make you leave. They So then they can manipulate your emotions against you and tell and break down your self-esteem, tell you you need to get closer to your goals, but then slowly over time, uh, manipulate you into how you get to those goals, but you're so broken down from all this EM uh, that like y- y- the lines completely blur uh, between um, manipulation and progress, right? I've read so many damn articles. I don't even know what I'm quoting. Like I'm trying. To <laughs> yeah, this is why I'm not a journalist. Uh, this isn't helpful. In summary, <laughs> you start self-improving, but then you kind of regress after that initial moment of clarity. And then you keep having to go through this process and it's actually making things worse and moving the target further, but making you more dependent on that target. And then they add in this layer as you get higher up of collateral, which um, is, you know, basically blackmail in the form of family secrets, nude images, uh, whatever it may be, that guarantees your secrecy. So the further you get manipulated and the further things you're told that obviously are going to be cause for concern or might raise an eyebrow, you can't get out of it because you have so much at stake. So it's kind of just this slow, weird process that's a combination of modules that seem semi-legitimate on the surface, but also support a sinister narrative that isn't super obvious on the, you know, at the beginning. Uh, Very skilled hypnosis and uh, NLP, eye movement type of detection techniques that learn people's behavior and mirror them and let them let their guard down. A public way to do this that reinforces that vulnerability so they get more and more vulnerable. You learn weaknesses, you use them against them, you move through the program and trying to self-improve by essentially just feeding into this further organization that serves Keith and not you yourself, but you don't even really realize that because you're getting some sort of praise and reinforcement, even though you're not actually really improving as a person. And then when you get to a place where you're kind of deprogrammed, 
And these tactics are consistently used on you and you're reinforced for doing the opposite of your intuition. You eventually kind of start to disassociate and operate in, in direct opposition to your intuition. And you have no choice but to progress within this organization. So you start to do things you wouldn't normally do that are out of character. Just to like look back and conclude to something I said earlier that might make like maybe a little more sense now. Um, the Keith, Nancy, her daughter, Lauren, the executive board, they were all trained in this art of hypnosis and NLP. They called their advanced technology, but it's repackaged. These are things, t you know, Tony Robbins openly uses. Um, and when you deploy those techniques, you have no sleep, your food intake is limited, you're playing volleyball all night. Like you're so scared of, <laughs> you know, kind of departing from the mission and not seeming to be following the same path everybody else like as everybody else it's just kind of like a total it's like a perfect storm <clears throat> of people that have a lot of money invested very high stakes a whole community invested a bunch of people gaslighting them making them to feel crazy for disagreeing uh intense coercion and pressure and beyond that three leaders lauren and, and nancy and keith that are um skilled at the art of hypnosis and NLP that they call their advanced technology, but it's just repackaged uh, techniques that a lot of people use from sales to Tony Robbins to whatever. But I keep going back to that knife analogy of uh, psychotherapeutic tools like in the wrong hands are used for two totally different purposes. One can heal and one can cut. And this is a mastermind manipulation, like a master manipulation of using a semi-legitimate tool uh, to prey on people's vulnerabilities extract them, use them against them, indoctrinate them into a subculture, get them in way too deep, and then gaslight them into thinking their intuitions are crazy so this, the, until they ultimately start operating in a way that is in opposition with their intuition so you can traumatize and abuse them. And they do become victims, but they've been brainwashed to believe that victimization is like a, a construct and not a real like emotional response to, 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 to trauma. It's not a re reality of somebody who's in the opposite position of an assailant uh, it is all up to the mind. And if somebody does something to you and says like, well, you're choosing to feel that way, you're choosing to be a victim. You're just like, what the fuck are you supposed to do? It's, it's a mind fuck. It is. It's like, it's so crazy and it's so wrong. And it's so disgusting. I'm tired of even talking about it. And I'm tired because I'm, I'm making no sense. And now I don't even know if I want to put out this episode, but um, yeah, I was just interested in the engineering of emotional states and I don't have a clear answer, but I just don't feel like I felt a closure at the end of the vow in terms of like how they get you. Beyond that, like there was, I was listening to one of the podcasts about Nexium, and they talk about how uh, he would propagate that in previous lifetimes. They were like many of them, like in the high leadership, they were Nazis. They lived these like he would manipulate people even at the highest level. So like, because part of me is like, okay, what's in it for Nancy Salzman? What's in it for Lauren? Like, why why were they so loyal to him despite his past and despite like if they were experts in this thing, shouldn't they be able to see through his thing? Were they in cahoots or were they being manipulated? Um, and like at the closing sequence of the vow, spoiler alert, it's, I'm pretty sure it's Nancy Salzman with her, an ankle bracelet and an Apple watch under house arrest. And then it ends with Keith on the phone being like, let's talk. And, and it, like, I forget what he says. Sorry. It alludes to a, alludes to a season two. And I'm like, oh, so now and it's like some quote about you're only like getting the top layer of this. And I'm like, so is the next season going to be from Nancy and Keith's perspective of what happened and how they justify it? Like, are they going to try to manipulate the public? Like, I don't know if I want to give them a voice and a platform, but I'm dying to know what was in it for Nancy. I'm dying to know. I, I, I feel like her and Lauren and Allison are like legit criminals. And there's still people dancing outside the prison that follow him and believe in Vanguard. And the whole thing is like so horrible and weird and crazy. And like, 
I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. It's, I, it's more confusing now than perhaps it was when I entered into it. And for that, I'm sorry. Um, but I mean, I think that like the people that left realized, okay, our weaknesses were exploited. We were there. We were blackmailed. Uh, people committed financial crimes in our names. People, uh, you know, abused us. People basically implicated us in a variety of ways by our blind trust to this organization. Uh, but the thing that is a little funny to me is like the, the vow didn't go into the MLM piece of like the, what I was talking about earlier is the sale of those programs and like how you get deeper into those programs and are rewarded for those things by getting, bringing in more and more recruits and how, uh, like literally the reason the Vancouver operation completely thrived is because of, uh, Sarah and like, uh, Mark. So, I just don't feel like it's really clear on like how much money they made and the business piece of that. Cause that's kind of what I'm interested in. And I wanted to like ultimately be able to tie back to, but I don't know a ton about the business model behind it. There's a couple other interesting things. I don't know if I learned a ton from India's documentary. I actually, when I watched it, I was like, Oh, this is four parts. I thought I was going to get to watch it all at once, but apparently it's going to be a more human approach to what it was like inside the actual DOS organization like the vow was more about like how it worked. And then this is more about like the human experience of being a part of it and being so like uh, destabilized and disoriented by being at somebody's beck and call as the sex slave and how uh, you're, like I said, just completely manipulated to the point to go against your own intuition where you think it's all fine and you think everyone else is crazy. It's just an advanced level of manipulation. I think most of us have trouble conceptualizing and that's why I'm having trouble explaining it. And for that, I'm sorry. But one interesting thing, too, is like I'm very confused by what was in it for Nancy Salzman. Um, and like I was listening to a podcast where they taught, uh, I think it was, uh, was it Barbara Boucher or Tony, his old girlfriend, Tony, saying that uh, Keith propagated like he would manipulate people at the highest level. So I never knew if like they were in cahoots or not, Nancy and Keith and Lauren. And you know what I mean? Or if Lauren and Nancy were manipulated. Did I say that earlier? Um, so basically he was saying like. They, many of them in the highest levels, Keith said, like convinced them they were Nazis and they had um, been reincarnated and they came into this lifetime to repair some of the damage done. Um, he told Barbara Boucher, she was the, this person that called the butcher of Prague, like, and who's like a literal architect of the Holocaust. He told Nancy Salzman, she was Hitler, but Keith was like somebody who, who saved all of the Jewish people. And he was like the savior, but he told them their task was to evolve their souls, to atone for their past atrocities. And one way to evolve their souls was to have sex with Keith. And that's something that's like a cultish thing of like, a, like new agey gurus is this concept that like you're an asexual being that's not in it for the wrong reasons, but you can, you can move the energy and chakras of a person. If, if, if you have sex with like the guru, uh, you can move the what's it called the kundalini kundalini energy like i don't know i don't really understand that level and again i didn't go that far into it but everything you listen to and read there's like another nugget and i'm like oh god i miss that but that's the thing is like those details like i don't really know there's like we're, nothing surprising in terms of it being messed up nothing was surprising after he burned the flesh of women near their vagina and put his initials into it and systematically raped them I the I just am like, how can people learn from this? How can they not get themselves into anything comparable? And beyond that, beyond this most extreme example of a cult, how can we be more mindful of um, people commodifying and, and, and getting us to chase something that can't be bought and getting us to 
obsess over what we're missing? How can we be okay in this moment with who we are? How can we not uh, allow the self-help industry, the human potential movement, MLMs that pry on the vulnerable, that promise you more, that get you roped in, even at smaller, less dangerous scales? How can we release that sort of like um, illusion that the self-help industry teaches us that we can buy or endure a, a you know several step program or worship a person that's ultimately going to be the answer to all of our problems. I think we all know in our heart of hearts that that's not the case. And I just think this was this deep seeking of contentment and happiness is this obsession with your isolation from this thing that other people are allegedly have is a, is a deeper aspect of the human existence that we need to stop making other people think they're crazy for having and start being more forthcoming about truly the nightmare dressed like a daydream that is reality. You know what I mean? Like being a person sucks. Like, like there's a lot of ups and downs in life. Like you cannot be joyful every moment of every day. If you were, you wouldn't even have a sense of joy because you experience the true high of joy in its absence. And I think you do need ups and downs. Nobody can be that falsely positive. Nobody wants to be. I, I think that it's just kind of, I don't know, there's so much here, but like, I think for me too, one of the things that like, okay, I just have to wait. I can talk louder now. <laughs> Depends what's going on outside my office. Um, one of the things I just, I really, really want to reiterate, there's an extreme irony to me of, of you know, tying in self-help and gurus and people with like personal brands, right? And being a person here saying all of this as a person with a podcast who speaks to people, who has followers, who has listeners, who like I call people call themselves the best. Like I am technically a leader of a group. And it it I that to me is a little bit terrifying in and of itself in that I never ever ever want anybody to think that I'm telling you how to live your life or the way I do things is right. I, I want to provide all the commentary that you'll absorb, but I don't want you to take it as advice or directive. And more than anything, I hope my message always is in, in presenting the gray and in, in trying to show both sides of things in examining, you know, empathetic sides of what is so easy to see as like salacious or ridiculous. Uh, my message more than anything is that like, the human experience is messy and it's up and down and there are no quick fixes and there is nobody that can tell you the right way to do things. And I think that we're in such a we often are in such a search of a shortcut or a way to, you know, numb ourselves and avoid uh, weathering the inevitably difficult, clunky, excruciating process of processing our own pain, experiences, trauma, emotions, our ups and downs. This is just part of it. We're dynamic creatures. We, we, we're, we are so layered and we all have the capacity to learn and love so much, but also experience great challenge, great disappointments and, and, and great uh, sadness and grief and depression. And I just think that like, I just want people to know like there are great days and there are bad days. You can be in the best phase of your life and have some of the lowest lows. You mean the lowest phase of your life and have some of the highest highs. There, there could not be more tension and conflict we will find ourselves presented with throughout life. And what I want to get across more than anything is that that's normal. It's normal to, to, to have all the emotions at times. It's normal to feel apathetic at times. It's normal to feel like an imposter. Life is a goddamn mess. But to quote Diamond Rhea, what a beautiful mess we're in. Sometimes I can't even believe the things I hear myself say. Um... I just never want people to think that I think there's one way to live or be or one clear uh, spectrum of right and wrong when 
All I ever hope for people that are so kind and patient to lend me their ears, to give me the privilege of their time, all I ever want for you is to know that the ups and downs and the the friction is all normal. And the desire to be better and do better is also normal. And the excitement and joy and the high we get from quick fixes, from programs, from self-development, from therapy, that's normal too. It's okay to want to do better and be better. And in many cases, we, we can and we will. Improvement is a slow, nominal journey. It's, it's just not an overnight thing. It's not a turnkey solution. I, I think we get disappointed when things don't overhaul our lives in the way that we hope they will. And so then we search for extreme solutions. And, you know, this is when people get tempted by these organizations and these pyramid schemes and these MLMs or these self-help gurus and thinking that one person or one methodology is this missing link, that they have the keys to what everyone else around me must have because their life looks so much better than mine. And I will do anything it takes to invest in myself and my future. Uh, So I will pay this person, this place or this thing, all this money as a result. All I want you to do is really, really think about the business model that you're, you're investing in, uh, if they really stand to gain from your ultimate improvement, or are they going to try to retain you as a client? What are their credentials? Do they have a PhD? Are they an MD? Do they have some sort of background where that makes them a subject matter expert in the thing that they are claiming they can overhaul? And if not, be so cautious. And most of all, like I never, ever, ever want you to think, you know, and you know how like Tony Robbins, like I'm not your guru, but meanwhile has profited on hundreds of millions of dollars off of people's insecurities and built a facade of curing them of life's harsh realities through a form of the same mind control Keith Raniere used to lure women to be his branded obedient sex lines. Like, I don't mean I'm not your guru in that sense. I mean, I'm literally not here to provide advice to tell you what to do with your life. I, I, I'm here to provide commentary, context fluff, to challenge convention, to keep you company. I, I, I won't undermine my contribution because I think there's a place for conversation, but for the love of God, please never feel like you have to do or be or take action in any way from anything I say. And I never, ever want anybody to think I'm positioning myself as any sort of guru or leader in that sense. The only action I ever want you to take is to to honestly accept yourself more deeply and to normalize the human experience. Other people are in pain. Other people are struggling. No one is as happy as they look and you are fine as you are. And and not everything that happens to you, unlike what Rachel Hollis says, is solely your fault. Life is not fair a lot of the time. And I I hope, you know, whenever you get the desire to improve something about your character or career or relationships, you absolutely go for it. We all have so much room for improvement. But I think that improvement lies more within compounded experiences from a diverse set of inputs. There are no shortcuts. There are no get-rich-quick schemes. There are no gurus or spiritual leaders that have all the answers. Like, we're all far too different for there to be a one-size-fits-all solution. And I guess, like, kind of the way I see it is just like I'd rather have a home filled with stuff I like than to pick a a decor scheme to arbitrarily put myself into – I like to take and leave a little of something I learn everywhere I go. When something resonates with me, I keep it. And I'd rather have a home filled with, like, things that – Share the common denominator of me liking them, that they suit me, they spoke to me. I, I don't want a house filled with things somebody else told me I needed. Um, what am I saying? I guess <laughs> my point is to remember that I have no clue what you should do with your life. I can't tell you right from wrong, which way is up. And literally no one else can either because it's not that simple. And I think people get into trouble when they're told it is that simple. And I really believe that our breakthrough is a genuine, earnest, altruistic efforts that end up improving our lives in a meaningful way are so rarely the efforts where someone else stands to, to, to make a profit. 
Just take your mental health seriously. Take advice from licensed professionals. Embrace the ups and downs. And for the love of God, give yourself a break. I cried twice in the last 24 hours. Once because of a comment I got about childless millennial. And once because I dropped a side order of buttermilk ranch. And it resulted in a dry sandwich. <laughs> Both of those things deeply mattered to me in that moment. And that's okay. It's going to be okay. I just never, ever want people to think that I'm telling you how to live your life. And I think when I see things like this and people that have followings, I'm like, that is not what I'm here for. I just don't want to be a person who's like talking to you. And I, I want to be a person who's like advocating for you. And I don't know what that looks like, but I just want people to fully own and accept themselves as they are and do what's best for them and not what other people tell you. Uh, and I know that in of itself is really aggressive advice, which is the irony of this all. But anyways, I just want, I don't know. I just really don't know the right way to do anything at all. Like if that were the case, I'd be a lot more together. I'd be a lot more successful. I'd have a lot less, uh, I'd be a lot less emotionally triggered by a side of ranch. Let's be honest. But what are you going to do? Life is, life is funny. Life's a mess. Sometimes a curse, sometimes a blessing, no matter what it brings. Don't worry about a thing. No, that's not Brene Brown. That is Shadaisy, a short-lived, I think Disney Channel sponsored, country girl group of sisters that was trying to compete with the Dixie Chicks that kind of fell short, if I'm honest. And if I'm also honest, they are Mormon and they did move to Tennessee just to kind of pretend to be country artists, which I love them even more for. They sang Don't Worry About a Thing. They sang uh, Life So Sweet in the Passenger Seat. They sang I Will But... But I would play now, but it doesn't feel fitting, and it's kind of late, and I really do need to finish this episode, so we're just going to use my intro-outro, because it's fine. We don't always need to be on theme, tie it back. It's kind of hard to tie. You know, a lot of people did think this was going to be about the vow with Rachel McAdams and Channing Tatum, and I'm sorry to under-deliver to any of you that were hoping I, would, I was going to discuss a, a you know, nine-year-old mediocre rom-com, but no, we did talk about a heavier <laughs> topic with the cults of it all, and I don't really know what tunes go with that, and honestly, I don't really care. Um, you have another episode to listen to uh, with Kate's uh, interview that should be out by now by the time we finish this. Uh, again, it's just like a fun bonus episode where we talk about a bunch of things, but I just decided that after seeing the full thing, I wanted to go more in depth. So I'm like, sorry for the inundation of content. But here's the thing, guys. It's like I could obsess over editing down and chopping these things together or you can save it like a to go bag for later. And if you consume it, great. If you don't, cool. I'm happier here in any capacity. I'm trying to do something a little bit different by just providing more things to binge about the things we all obsess over. Um, and yeah, hopefully you enjoyed listening to this, however confusing and uh, inconclusive it was. Uh, I love you so much. Long story short, never listen to me. But like, also, can you come back and listen to me? Because I, I do need that. <laughs> Tugboat's having a meltdown. Uh, leave five stars if that that would be like life changing for me. That's the only way people chart and the only way I can compete with crime Rama and murder, she joked. Um, and if you want to share with a friend, it makes all the difference on your Instagram stories and, uh, be sure to send me a screenshot if you're private. All right, you guys, I love you as always. Let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. <laughs>